Hey everybody, my name's Dave Jackson and this is Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where I'm bringing in guests to talk about games that I've played recently. My guest today is a friend of the show and stylish combat enthusiast, Moonborn. Welcome. Hello, hello, David. Thanks for having me on. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, good to have you. First podcast. (laughs) Hell yeah, welcome, welcome. Today we're going to be talking about Death's Gambit, which is a 2D Metroidvania Souls-like action any more genres i think that's it uh did we did we say did we say rpg i feel like we should say rpg okay all right rpg so a 2d metroidvania souls like action rpg developed by white rabbit and published by adult swim games in 2018 adult swim look at that yeah it's yeah that was a weird thing i always (laughs) associated them with like weirdo joke games back in the day that i never actually tried out yeah, like, uh, I don't know, it's in my head like a, they're making games for E-Bombs World or something like that, but look at this, a legit game. Yeah. And there is a big expansion subtitled Afterlife, Death's Gambit Afterlife, published by Serenity Forge in 2021. Moon, you played the original version of the game, right? And that is Afterlife... correct. Yeah, I, I played yeah. the original version twice and I played Afterlife once. Right, cool. So I only played the Afterlife version, so my notes are all going to be focused on that, and feel free to jump in with, like, if there's a cool comparison between the original and Afterlife, because I know there were huge, huge changes made to the game. Spoiler alert, the entire first 10 minutes of the game is new to Afterlife, from the moment you boot up the game, so. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So, this, uh, the I just want to say right at the beginning, this Afterlife update is a just a colossal feat because this is a very small team uh, making this game. So it's a very cool, very big update. It really, really added a lot to the game. Like, uh, if you look at the big list of things, it's... I mean, am I correct in assuming it's almost like playing a different game entirely? Not entirely, but it is... I would... Hmm... I hesitate to make Scholar of the First Sin comparisons because Scholar of the First Sin is the only version of Dark Souls 2 I've played. But at the same time, just from what I've heard and what I know about that update, like Afterlife seems to be like on par with that or more so, honestly, with how much content it adds. And one thing I find particularly interesting, at least like in the soul in the Souls like and Souls adjacent game space, is that I don't think I've ever seen one of these Souls likes try a Scholar of the First Sin style update where they just go, oh yeah, redux the game, um, DLC type content, plus just re you know reconsidering so many things in the game that we weren't able to do the first time. Right. Yeah, and since it since it was such a small team making the game, they obviously have a lot of limitations for what they can put into the game. So. It's cool that they were able to go back and um, kind of make make it seems like make the game they were always envisioning. Yeah, and one one thing that makes me really happy that they were able to do this is because when it came out, in addition to not really being, I guess, quite what they originally wanted, it it apparently was very buggy on launch. Um, I did not play it at launch, but supposedly it was very buggy on launch. And in addition to a lot of elements in the game kind of feeling like unfinished and half-baked. So the fact that they were able to finish this all these years later and 
they happen to do it later enough that they've got new platforms to release it on, like the Nintendo Switch, which it, it kind of, I feel like it kind of gives them that rare, like, I don't know, I guess, I don't know if No Man's Sky type second chance is the word, but like, you know, it's it's gotten like hype all anew for, you know, just because of the new content that's coming out. Like there are tons of people experiencing it for the first time, it seems, just because of that update. Yeah, like me, for sure. Before we get uh, really deep into Death's Gambit, though, we want to have a little chat about like other stuff that we're playing. So other than Death's Gambit, what have you been playing recently, Moon? Well, I feel like it's cheating to say Metroid Dread, because that's an obvious answer. I uh, yeah, <laughs> I uh, played that. I played that to completion twice in the past uh, in the past week since it's come out, and you know I'm forcing myself not to pick it up again, taking a little break. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I am also playing a uh, Demon's Tilt. Uh, I guess I can thank Dave for that recommendation. That's a uh, mm-hmm. that's been great. I've always been like an, an aspiring pinball guy without actually being a pinball guy so um uh, a couple others i should actually be looking at my notes i haven't been doing that um <laughs> um just uh what other games i mentioned oh yeah i played uh, another metroid band i played bunny must die a couple months ago which uh yeah and i've never heard of that one so what's that one all about okay so you know cave story yeah it's that kind of project where it's just like like this kind of weirdly ambitious, you know, but very small passion project by one guy. It's a very, very, very like moe flavored uh, Metroidvania about a uh, about a uh, bunny girl who grows cat ears, and that's like illegal in the world she lives in for some reason. Uh, oh shit! <laughs> yeah, Uh-oh. it's it's very it's a it's a very very strange, and it's you know it's a. You know, the the setup is, you know, Metroidvania. You go into a labyrinth and you just kind of, like, make your way through. But what sets it apart is that it's highly, highly technical. It kind of, um... It's highly technical in a way that understands Super Metroid while being very different from Super Metroid. So you see a lot of the things Super Metroid did, but in completely different ways. And this isn't the Bunny Must Die podcast, so I won't make I won't go on about it. But <laughs> that that that's another game I would like to talk with someone about at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, uh, it's good good to have a uh, a game that I've never heard of on here. And speaking of Metroidvanias, uh, this. Death's Gambit episode is going to kick off a string of Metroidvanias on this show. So if you're into Metroidvanias, uh, we have some stuff for you coming up on Tales from the Backlog. So You love to see it. Yeah. Um, And I do want to just say really quickly, Demon's Tilt is fucking great. And if anyone likes pinball and you like like uh, oh like occult imagery and stuff like that and like banging music you gotta play Demon's Tilt. That game rules. Yeah, fairly new to it myself, but I'm already very hooked on it, only like maybe four or five hours in. Um, it, it's especially great, I think, if you if you like a pinball game that's that lean, a pinball video game that leans into being a video game, you know? Like the, oh, yeah. The, like, it definitely does a lot of tricks that you wouldn't be able to pull off on a real pinball table, so. Yeah, 100%. It's definitely not like trying to be a realistic pinball game. It's it's more like, um, we're going to have shit like exploding all over the table. There's Yeah, a literal mini bosses. Yeah, yeah. This, this, exactly. this, ain't, this ain't your dad's uh, Windows 95 uh, Space Cadet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good memories right there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's get into Death's Gambit. So before we start, 
Death's Gambit has a story, and being a Souls-like game, some of the story is told indirectly, uh, which means that I did not pick it up uh, without looking up <laughs> and doing research. But Death's Gambit also gives you a kind of direct main plot, which definitely is spoilable. And I think that there are moments in that main plot that are like cool reveals. So yeah. there will be a spoiler section at the end of the podcast where we talk about specific uh, like boss encounters um, any spoilable experiences that we want to talk about and also talking about the story. So we'll begin with our histories with Death's Gambit and what kind of brought us to this game. So guests always goes first. What brought you to Death's Gambit, Moon? Uh, well, I am an avid I am an avid listener of uh, Bonfire Side Chat, which is a fantastic uh, Dark Souls and Souls like uh, focused podcast I've been listening to for five years. And back in uh, I believe summer 2019, they announced that they would be covering Death's Gambit as uh, the next game in their lineup. And I kind of already wanted to play it for a while, but you know, as usual, you know, it being covered on one of my favorite shows was you know, motivation for me to actually start. And I played that, I think, over the course of, like, a week, just binged it and absolutely loved it. Like, you know, I, like, it, it, it was, it's very much, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll get into my opinions later, but, you know, that that was how I discovered it was because, you know, a podcast I like uh, was covering it and I decided, okay, I'm going to play it before they cover it so I'm ready and I had a blast with it, so. Yeah. That podcast is great, Bonfireside Chat. If anybody uh, listening loves like Dark Souls and Bloodborne and all of those games and wants to hear a podcast that's super, super dedicated to those games, Bonfireside Chat is the best out there for that. Um, for me, I also heard about Death's Gambit for the first time on Bonfireside Chat, but it, at that point, it was only on PS4 and PC. And I had just heard that that new Afterlife update was, like, in development. So I figured I would just put it off until, you know, till that update comes out. Because I'm, I'm not one to replay games. And I have this, like, I don't know, I have this thing where once I finish a game, my brain moves on from it, like, permanently. So I have a lot of trouble with games that have DLC that comes out, like, after I play the main game. I have a hard time getting into that game again. So I knew, like, if this game's as good as they say it is, I want to play it. So I'll just wait for Afterlife. And it took longer than I think everyone expected, but it was definitely worth the wait. Yeah, for, for context, I believe the game originally came out in 2018. And we're yeah. just now getting the update in, tw in fall 2021. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. And it's and still not on PS4 yet, so you know, that'll be coming soon, hopefully. Right. Yeah, I should say I played this on Switch. It rules on Switch. I, I think the Switch is a perfect Metroidvania machine. And yeah, it runs great. I had no issues at all on Switch. And it looks fantastic on that new Switch OLED. It looks incredible. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I, I've seen some comparisons of the OLED and it seems to look pretty great. Yeah, uh, Death Scam, we'll talk about it uh, in the uh, graphical area when we talk about the like visuals and music and stuff, but I want to say it does look great on Switch. 
the game took me about 12 hours to play. Uh, for anyone curious about how long this game is, Moon, how long it, did it take you? Um, uh, originally, uh, I, I do not know how long my original play was, but because I am a relentless sicko and I wanted to refresh myself on the original before Afterlife, <laughs> I uh, uh-huh. replayed it this summer and nowadays I do make sure to record all my playtime. I spent about, uh, uh, let me check, uh, 11 hours for my playthrough of the original. And then Afterlife uh, was about 18 hours. Okay, cool. Yeah, it, there is definitely a lot of like extra optional stuff that you can do. And we'll we'll talk about that later. So that's why like 18 hours versus my 12 is uh, kind of a big difference for such a kind of short-ish game but it's because there's a lot of extra stuff to do that moon did and i did not so let's uh let's take a break we'll listen to some music from death's gambit and we will come back and talk about the mechanics and what this game is all about Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk about the mechanics and what makes Death's Gambit stand out. So I mentioned this before. I want to talk about the visuals and the music beforehand. I think this game is beautiful. It's super colorful, and I was mentioning the Switch OLED and how it looks great on that. It's because there's a lot of dark areas and a lot of super colorful areas, and that OLED screen really gets that contrast really well. I think the sprites are awesome in this game, and the animations are really smooth, really awesome. I, it, Again, there's as far as I know, there's like, I don't know, 10 people working on this game, and it's mostly two people. And it's really crazy how good this game looks and how good the animation and stuff is. I do, I do want to add on that by saying that the beauty of the game, the pixel art, and just like the graphical presentation in general... That was in the original game too. Like yeah. the like I, I was I was actually kind of um when I when I played Afterlife, you know, I was like I noticed that they hadn't really like updated the look about anything that was in the original. And it's because they didn't have to. It already looked really, really good. Like th- there there were a couple of uh new animations I've noticed for, you know, certain cutscenes, etc. that they added to give a little mm-hmm. more life to what was going on, but the but the actual way the characters and the bosses and the enemies all looked, like that was all in the original because they put so much heart into that original release too. Yeah, if you get it right the first time, no need to uh, go back and change it. It's it's really just like, and especially in like, you know, the Souls-like genre is not always a very colorful genre. Um, I think of like, the Dark Souls games, not super colorful, but like the in the 2D realm, like Salt and Sanctuary, not a colorful game. And this is just like bursting with colors. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is very is very much more colorful than some other ones. And and, and even among like some of the uh 
even among some like the more colorful ones, I think it stands out. Like you know, because it's not really focused on that kind of necessarily much much like the story and some of the other tones of it. It's not quite as focused on the dark and drab aspect of that's common in Souls likes as some others are. So like mm-hmm. you know, you have something like Hollow Knight, which I would. I would never call drab in appearance, but it is still going for a much darker and moodier look than Death Gambit is. Yeah, for sure. And that I like how you said that Death Gambit's not going for a moody look. It's not going for a really moody tone a lot of the game either, which is something we can talk about in a little bit. Um, the game begins... Uh, this is still talking about the way it looks. The game begins with you kind of having your opening cutscene, and then you get on your horse and you ride forward as like the credits roll in the beginning. And it's a really, really great intro. You get this kind of transition between the areas. You see all the colors that are happening. You get introduced to like the laid back background music as you're traveling. It's a really good introduction to like the setting, the way the game looks, the kind of music that's going to be playing as you're going through these levels it's very very cool like a just you know 15 or 20 second opening credit sequence where your guy's riding his horse it's um really gets you into kind of the the tone of the game yeah i I will say like it, it works for me in a unique way where I'm very much one of those kind of like grumpy grandpas who can sometimes like thumb their nose up at like you know at the attempt to ape cinematic language in video games. But Mm -hmm. there's something about really good pixel art trying to evoke that same feeling that tends to work better for me. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not a Final Fantasy guy, but I'm never going to forget the first time I saw that opening credit sequence in Final Fantasy VI, where it tried to evoke, like, the same feeling of, like, you know, an opening credit sequence in a movie, but with this gorgeous pixel art and like chiptune music and mm-hmm. death's gambit kind of hit those same sensors for me you know in that way yeah it is a it is a really cinematic opening for it and it like the rest of the game is not super cinematic in that way but it's a it's a nice introduction and i brought up the music there so the music in death's gambit i found like following me outside of the game especially like the music that plays as you're traversing the levels, not necessarily boss music, because, um, yeah, Souls-like boss music, when I'm in the boss fight, I'm focusing really hard, and the the melodies don't catch me, but the, not to say that it's bad, but the music, when you're, like, going through the levels, it's really laid back, you have these um, just kind of simple melodies playing in the background, and they're really catchy, and I think they're awesome, and I'm going to put them in the episode here so you'll hear some of them. And, like, it it really, it's kind of like Hollow Knight, the background music there when you're going through the levels. It's very, very simple, but it, it adds just this little bit, this little mood to the levels as you're going through. So the music is really memorable, especially those level background tracks yeah i would say i would say the music is uh one of the it stands out as one of the most especially memorable ones in the genre which you're gonna hear mm-hmm. you're gonna hear me say that a lot because you know i I like this game enough to go on a podcast to talk about it but you know it <laughs> but um but the music stands out as especially memorable you know among other souls likes and just like just i guess just to give my brief take on the music like 
you know, a, a lot of what you said, like, you know, the, um, the, the, well, there's so much like good melody to the music and it, and another, you know, trick that it pulls that, again, this is kind of like a simple cheesy thing, but it's always really affecting to me personally is weaving is kind of like, you know, weaving a main theme into all the songs in the game. Mm-hmm. So like, there'll be, you know, some, you know, there'll be some, you know, boss fights or, you know, some other track to sound nothing like, but then suddenly out of nowhere, you're, you'll hear, you know, the uh, little, that kind of like piano tune you hear at the beginning that kind of defines the entire soundtrack. Like I'm not musically, I'm not musically like, you know, educated. So I don't know if I'm butchering like melody when I mean leitmotif or something like that, but, but it is, you know, this affecting thing I really like. And yeah, as far as the uh, boss tracks, the bombastic tracks, Again, just something I'm a sucker for. I, I really do. Um, I do think as, although I will say that as far as those kind of big bombastic, like, you know, choruses, etc., I would say I think they do a good job of keeping the melody there, which is something mm-hmm. I've seen like certain, especially like latter day, you know, from soft games get criticized for by some people, like a lack of a feeling of melody that I think that Gambit does a good job of keeping. Yeah, it, it's definitely not. It's it's definitely not like the you know the the choral like ha 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 from like the later FromSoft boss tracks. It, yeah. it's, you don't get a lot of that. They still have melodies to them, so it, it's good. And <laughs> it, it's interesting. Like when I play these, like two a lot of the two D Souls likes have background tracks as you're going through the levels, whereas Dark Souls and Bloodborne famously don't have any music when you're going through the levels. It's just footsteps and, you know, enemy sounds and stuff like that. And I think it adds a lot uh, to this. Not saying I want Dark Souls to have level music, but, yeah. like, the contrast is there. Yeah, we. I, I kind of hinted at this in the previous section, but, like, the the one big, big focus that Death's Gambit has, I think, sets it apart from, uh, that sets it apart, you know, from, like, you know, the focus of other Souls-likes is that, it's 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 a lot less about being like you know dark and moody and it's a lot more about just being really emotional in general and that constant music is something they use a lot to set an emotional tone yeah there's definitely an emotion that they're trying to set up it feeds into the story which i am going to professionally segue into now um i should not have mentioned the segue but i did so anyway talking about the story in Death's Gambit, this is a world where immortality exists. This is a uh, kind of key feature in, like, I almost want to say, like, politics and day-to-day life in this um, in this world, which it would be if it existed in our world, too. Anyway, um, so the Great Kingdoms are always questing to this place called Alduin, trying to claim the source of immortality. It is protected by the immortals, and those expeditions to go claim immortality get crushed repeatedly. You play as the main character named Sorin, who's a warrior who dies in one of those expeditions, but is resurrected by death himself in order to serve as kind of like his right-hand man. And your task is to get to the center of Cyrodon, where the source of immortality is held, and... Uh, do what you will, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I um, think. There, yeah, De- death hints that uh, that there is you know something keeping him from being able to do his job, and it seems to have to do with the source of immortality. So, 
you know, he right. wants you to take care of that for him. Yeah. We should say right now, while we're on the subject, Death, the character in this game, I think is really good. Death is like one of the main sources of comic relief because a lot of the other stuff that's happening in the story is pretty brutal. Death is consistently funny, though, and he he always has like these one-liners. You go into places and you see Death doing things that you wouldn't expect Death to be doing, and... The thing that got me is he talks shit sometimes when you die. Like, he's like, oh, man, I was relaxing. Now I got to fucking resurrect you. Come on, get your shit together. And <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that. He's he's a pretty funny character. Yeah, Death is like, in terms of like the kind of range he has, he's very much a four-course meal of a character. And I, I hate food analogies, but I didn't catch myself all well. <laughs> but... um. But, but you know, he like he has like he has everything like he's funny. Like you said, he is he you know, he has just some like genuinely like really badass, you know, lines. He's really profound and philosophical. The the way I kind of um describe death in this game to people is that he comes off like a dentist almost like he. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's a dentist. He he knows he knows that what he's doing scares tons of people. Like, nobody likes him. Everyone is scared of the dentist. But he also knows what he's doing is for everyone's own good. So he kind mm-hmm. of has this, like, wry sense of humor about it. Like, oh, 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 I know you're afraid to get all your teeth pulled. But it, it, he has that kind of energy to me. Yeah, that's a good uh, good analogy there, for sure. So the way that I set up the story makes it sound pretty bare bones, makes it sound, you know, not unlike the stories in Dark Souls, you know, and stuff like that. But this game does differentiate itself for sure. We're not going to get into it now because it's uh, all spoilers from here on out. But I will say right now for anyone who's kind of, who would be kind of wanting more of a story, like a direct story from this kind of game, it's definitely there and i think there's some nice story beats so again no spoilers uh no further spoilers about the story but moon overall how do you feel about the story in this game and how it kind of stacks up with uh, other metroidvania stories or other souls-like stories i would say in terms of direct storytelling in particular it is one of the it, it almost feels weird to say it's one of it's weird to say it's one of the more successful Souls-like direct stories because I feel like Souls-likes don't, they either don't try for a direct story or they just kind of like stumble on themselves so, so obviously that there's like no contest really. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it's, you know, it's, it's a story that's real like character focus. There's a, you know, again, we'll get into the spoilers, spoilers later, but there's a very real feeling that okay, someone real, whoever made this game really, really, really like projected their heart and soul into the story they wrote. Like, you know, yeah. like there's a, like, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, uh, that the people, that at least one of the people who made this game had some real, real deep thoughts about their mother, you know, while making this, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's fair for sure. This, um, and like the, all of the kind of, uh, delving into the themes of immortality in this in this game definitely makes you think like the person who wrote the story a- absolutely has spent a lot of time thinking about this and all the implications of it yeah for sure so 
Let's talk about kind of the gameplay. And so we describe this as a Souls-like Metroidvania. So we're going to start with the Souls-like stuff. So if you've played a Dark Souls, Bloodborne, stuff like that, you are well aware of the like main mechanics in it. So if you haven't played it, we will uh, I'll kind of explain it for people who haven't played Dark Souls and stuff too. So when you die, uh, you have your checkpoints. Checkpoints are something that's not just a Souls-like thing. Uh, apologies if I call them bonfires throughout the podcast, but you have your statues in Death's Gambit that serve as your checkpoints, your level-up spot, the place where you can assign your abilities, you can upgrade stuff at the statues. This is pretty similar to like the Dark Souls stuff, at least Dark Souls, not not really Bloodborne. It, but... It's very similar to Dark Souls 1 in particular, where when you go to a bonfire, that's where you do literally everything, as opposed yeah. to, uh, I think, uh, I think basically all of the Dark Souls 1 successors, except for Sekiro, I think you have to... I think I think you have to actually like go to a specific place to handle a lot of your stuff, but yeah, but yeah, so, so it's a lot like Dark Souls One in particular. You level up there. Eventually, you're able to do a myriad of other things there, upgrade yeah. gear, etc. It, it's actually really you. You actually do more at the statues in Death's Gambit than you do in like any other Souls like at your bonfire equivalent. I think because like in Dark Souls, you can't you don't upgrade gear at the bonfires and. Here in Death's Gambit, you do everything. And uh, one thing I want to mention is that since like these are your checkpoints, this is where you'll start over if you die. There is a clever kind of like difficulty option in this game. In Death's Gambit, you play it. You have different character class choices, and one of the character classes can repair broken statues. And so I'm not sure how many this adds to the game, but I want to say maybe five or around that area do you have an idea how many extra I there are i think it's a bit more than that i feel like i feel like five is a little bit more in line with how it was in the original i noticed i didn't play death's acolyte so i on my afterlife playthrough so i couldn't take advantage of this but the uh but i noticed way more um way more uh broken statues that could be repaired um yeah. in afterlife compared to uh compared to the original okay Cool. So yeah, if you're kind of worried about like this game being really difficult, you can play as the Death's Acolyte, who, number one, you play with a badass scythe, and it's a lot of fun to play, but number two, you can repair these broken checkpoints and give yourself, like we said, at least five, probably more checkpoints throughout the game, which makes a big difference. And I feel it's important to note there's no actual, like, there's no actual catch to this. Yeah. Like every, like every, every, like every, we'll discuss later. Every class in the game has a special ability, permanent ability that you only get with that class, and it that 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 sack light just happens to be making death statues. There's no like weird uh, trade off or anything like that for doing so. Right. Yeah. They're they're not trying to trick you. This is this is definitely like this character class is playing the game on an easier difficulty. Yeah, it is explicitly a a player mercy or an easy mode of some sort. Yeah, and it's cool. Um, I'm all for it. And, you know, if you don't want to play the game with, like, this easy modifier or easier modifier, like, I played as the Death's Acolyte. It's not an easy game even with that. It's just something to help you out. 
But if you don't want to do that, you play as a different class or play as the Death's Acolyte. Don't repair the statues. There's nothing uh, nothing making you do that. The next kind of Souls-like element is the uh, Estus equivalent. People who haven't played Dark Souls, you have a certain number of heals you can do in between checkpoints. So in Death's Gambit, you have these plumes, like Phoenix plumes. And this kind of differentiates from other Souls-likes in some cool ways. Number one, you find different plumes out in the world as you're exploring. And all of them have different, like amounts that they heal or other like passive bonuses they give you like there's one for example one of them doesn't heal quite as much but you get raised defense after you use one so maybe you don't need to heal quite as much the next time or something like that so this is very cool i always it was always good to find one of these out in the world as you're exploring and uh yeah cool system if I, if I may uh, describe the second part of the system, um, mm-hmm, you'll yeah. notice I didn't add a single word to what Dave said about the different plumes. And that is because <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about the different plumes because I played all three, uh, three of my playthroughs with the other thing you can do with the plumes, which is completely get rid of them in favor of extra DPS. Right. Basically, when you're at a, uh, when you're at a statue... You can um you have an option I, I forget what the option is called I should know but uh, oh yeah it's um it, it's enhanced plume or or augment plume I think yeah, augment yeah. plume I think is the word and mm-hmm. what you can do is you can sacrifice um any number of your plumes aka your number of heals to get an additional percentage of damage just permanently applied to your character um in the original each plume gives you an extra ten percent for a total of two hundred percent if you have full plumes or mm-hmm. a, or up to, or five percent each for a maximum of 150 percent in afterlife right and so it's another way to like oh like set your own difficulty in a way if you're like me and you get hit a lot and you need your healing you keep your plumes i i rolled through afterlife with two plumes sacrificed for extra 10 percent damage which 10% might not sound like a lot, but if it means you don't have to, if it means you kill the boss one combo quicker than you would have before, that's awesome. It's, it can really make a difference. And like Moon said, if you, if you give away all your plumes and you're at 150% damage, that's, uh, I mean, if you are skilled enough to not get hit, you probably just melt through stuff in the game. Another thing to note about it is even if you don't feel skilled enough to do that, there can be a strategic element to sacrificing all your plumes because Mm -hmm. the thing that I guess we can kind of segue this into essence because it's kind of related, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that that the way essence works? Essence are kind of like your souls in Dark Souls, whereas in Dark Souls, basically every time you you kill an enemy, you get you get a um you basically just get a currency that is a combination of money and exp right and you know what the way it would work in dark souls is that when you died you would lose all of the souls exp that you know that you had care that you had unspent on you mm-hmm. whereas in death's gambit 
you do not lose your souls, or as they're called, essence in this game. However, you lose a plume when you die. And then you can either go and retrieve it, which is something you do with your souls and dark souls, or you can pay a select amount of essence to retrieve it straight from the statue. So if you're in a... So if you're in a new area, even if you don't want to sacrifice your plumes for DPS, if you're in a new area and you kind of want to scout or explore with like minimal um, minimal risk, what you can do is you can just strategically sacrifice all your plumes. That way you can just kind of like be as like reckless as you want, just kind of like death running for items or whatever, or just exploring the cave. And then when you feel more confident, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to take my plumes back because I need the healing. I'm going to actually try to get through this. Yeah, that's uh that's a good point. And we should mention like when we say sacrifice your plumes, it's not permanent. You can get, you can change that at any time. Oh, get yes, them of all back. Yeah, none of it is permanent. No. Yeah. Right. And uh yeah, so it's very it's a very generous game as far as like these souls likes go. So your Moon, you're a really experienced souls like player as am I. How do you feel like this combination of all of these kind of tweaks to the established formula works? Uh for Death's Gambit. I would say that when when I first played Death's Gambit in 2019, it was basically on the tail, it was only a couple months after Sekiro came out, which Mm -hmm. is a game that, without getting, you know, provocative, it kind of bummed me out in a couple of ways, (laughs) especially when it came to, like, the difficulty scaling, etc. And I really appreciated the, you know, I appreciated the plumes in Death's Gambit, not only for just, you know, giving me some kind of, like, approach option to, like, handle, like, the punishment that I would receive. But mm-hmm. also, like, just, it felt weirdly reasonable in a way that I'm not the kind of person that normally would just kind of, like, do, like, oh, hard mode. I'm going to sacrifice, you know, all my healing or whatever. But there was something about the difficulty, especially in the original Death Scam, that just felt super, super reasonable in comparison to so many other Souls-likes. And right after playing a you know, an actual FromSoft game that I felt was, like, bitingly hard, I was like, oh, this is such a breath of fresh air. Like, oh, this makes me feel good. And, you know, in in Afterlife, they did kind of, like, trim it back a bit. Like I mentioned, you can get a max of 150 as opposed to 200%. But it it does still feel really reasonable. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, like, I and I'm not somebody who thinks that Dark Souls needs difficulty sliders, uh, I think, like like we said, there's ways for you to make Death's Gambit easier for you. There are ways to do that in Dark Souls as well. But Death's Gambit seems like it was designed in a way for you to like really customize the difficulty and customize how you want the game to be difficult. Like, you can play as the character class to unlock more statues. You can sacrifice your plumes for extra damage if you're confident in yourself. If you're not confident to like not get hit all the time like me uh you don't do that maybe sacrifice one or two of your plumes and get a little damage boost and so you you kind of set your own terms and like i said even if you do these kind of easy mode modifiers it's not a super easy game even with that i don't think that this is a crushingly difficult game either i think it's pretty pretty fair so I think these kind of modifiers really make it stand out from 
you know, other games that are like inspired by Dark Souls and they say like, okay, well, Dark Souls, bonfires, Estus, stamina management, stuff like that. So we're just going to copy that, basically, put a different name on all of those things. Yeah, and then they kind of do the, you know, oh, but change is so look doesn't look like you copied kind of me. More like they change one, th- they maybe change exactly one thing about the formula, but mm-hmm. you can kind of tell it was done for the sake of having it be different. And it doesn't mm-hmm. like feel additive a significant a lot of the time. When a lot, I feel like that's one of the films of Souls likes a lot of Souls likes is it's not just the it's not just that they're directly copying, but it's that they know they kind of know that they need to be original in some way, but they don't really know how to meaningfully change like a part of the formula to feel good. Yeah, exactly. And then in Death's Gambit, you can tell that they were like, we want to change the way that Estus works and how are we going to do this in a cool way? Let's like, let's put our own thing on this and make sure that it feeds into the game in a cool way. And I think they really, really nailed it. It's very, very creative. And I think all of the changes that they made to the established formula really work. And, and I think funnily enough is like, it is a new thing they did that still feels like a lesson they took from Dark Souls because, you know, like all these methods we just discussed for customizing your own difficulty in Death's Gambit, all of these are diegetic, like mechanically, you know, they're diegetically within the mechanics of the game. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Dark Souls itself does as well. Like it's not in the same ways, but there are, you know, things in Dark Souls, such as, you know, like the different covenants, like, you know, like in Dark Souls 2, you know, you have the easy mode covenant, the champions covenant, and then, you know, you have like the stuff surrounding multiplayer, etc. Um, So it's like, it feels like they took that idea and then tried to think of their own way of doing it. And you know, it feels good, I think. Right. It's like they played through Dark Souls and were like, hey, I wish I could do this with my Estus. Like, I'm going through this boss and I I die before I can use all my Estus. I wish I could trade it in for extra damage. And they were like, okay, we're going to put that in our game and it's going to be cool. And it's really good. So, yeah. Um, let's talk kind of, well, for me, kind of briefly, I don't know how you feel about the RPG elements of the game. There are eight classes that you can play as in the afterlife update. They, I think this is new where they did a cool thing where like before you pick a class, you can kind of test drive them. You can like test out how their combos feel and stuff like that. I think this is really awesome in a game like or in a genre where combat is really important and you need to feel very comfortable with like what your character can do. It's really cool that they let you test drive the characters before you commit to one yeah the um uh as far if we're i guess i guess hit the uh bell for you know moonborn bringing up comparisons to the original game yeah this was the this is one this is the first thing you see when you actually you know start a save file and it's already entirely different from the way it was in the original in the original you had a title screen that was literally just the first scene you know that we described earlier like you know right before you get on your horse and start riding off all the credits play um you would start a file it would bring up a very very typical dark souls looking like class and character creation screen basically like you can't customize how soren looks but you know it would let you choose your class your your starting gift etc and whereas in afterlife they have this entire new scene dedicated to it, along with the ability to test 
the classes like Dave mentioned. And, you know, they, and they do manage to tie some of the story stuff into it as well, which is all yeah. new. And it it provides the bulk of the not all, but it does provide the bulk of the what I mentioned earlier as the entire 10 minutes of new stuff that you're instantly hit with in the game compared to the original. Yeah, it, it's 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 cool. Like, oh, uh, I mean, it really sucks in any game, really, when you you roll a character class and you play for an, you know, a half hour or an hour or something and you're like I don't like the way this feels in Death's Gambit they at least give you a chance to like try them out and it's really good yeah and uh speaking of classes I will say one was I, I earlier today I did do some homework you know comparing my gameplay of the original and the uh and Afterlife just so I can like pick out any like differences I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. and one thing I paid attention was class selection and one thing I noticed surprisingly was that with with one exception, the um I believe the mage I believe the uh mage class, I think it's called the mage class. So you know, you know what I mean when I say that. Um yeah. the mage class in the original had a ability where where sacrificing where we're using plumes in that we're using plumes would um I already forget what it is, but it would give you some kind of like special buff or some kind of special advantage. And they removed that in Afterlife. I feel like they kind of did that because, you know, it didn't. I feel like I imagine it was the kind of thing that would kind of encroach on the whole like sacrificing your plumes thing, you know? Okay. Whereas, yeah. like, you know, if you're playing as a mage, it feels like you have. It feels like you're de-incentivized from maybe taking advantage of the ability to sacrifice your plumes because you get a special benefit from using them as a mage. The other thing I noticed, and I don't think there was a mechanical change here, but it was something they pointed out. Um, you know, the Death's Acolyte was, you know, kind of it wasn't explicitly stated, but it was pretty clearly stated as being kind of like the easy mode class, just because it says it says right there in the description that, oh, yeah, you can create extra save points. You know, that feels pretty right. self-explanatory as an easy mode. They also added a line to the description for the Assassin class, which, from what I see between the two versions of the game, has more or less the same, you know, special abilities. But mm-hmm. in Afterlife, they specifically added the they specifically added the um, line. Um, the, because all, because all, in all of them, they add a line that says, oh, play this if you like. Choose this class if you like strategic gameplay. Choose this class if you want... Um, fast-paced beat-em-up gameplay. And then for mm-hmm. Assassin, it said, uh, choose this if you're a Death's Gambit expert. And because yeah. I'm self-important <laughs> as all hell, I chose that one on principle when I played Afterlife. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. and I, I remember I saw that line and I was like, not this time, no. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, you, you kind of mentioned the abilities. So I want to talk about the like skill tree as it relates to like your character. So each class has a skill tree dedicated to that class. I think there are a couple of skill trees that are like shared between all classes. I think there there are like four or five skill trees that you can unlock in the game. Yeah, ba- basically you have a general basically in in the original Death's Gambit, you only had a single skill tree. I did mm-hmm. forget to research this in particular, but I'm pretty sure you get a single skill tree and it's custom tailored to your class. So like, you know, when, so, so if you play as the, uh, if you play as the assassin or if you play as the blood knight, you'll, uh, the, you'll specific, you'll get like your kind of general talents, but Mm -hmm. 
you'll, you'll get your general talents on the tree, but you'll also get talents specific to the weapons that your class is designed to use. Whereas in Afterlife, yeah. they made it so that you have a basic general talent tree that every class has. It is the exact same across. It is all just general stuff. Like, you know, oh, right. um, uh, was, uh, I'm just making up an example. Like, uh, okay, never mind. I'm not going to make an example. I'm drawing a blank. But, <laughs> um, but like just, just, just general, just general abilities and upgrades that, and buffs that, you know, apply to any class. But then you get a secondary talent tree that is specifically for your class. Right. And then you get another skill tree along the line that where you correct. can you yeah. can dual class. Yeah, you can you can yeah. You can cherry pick abilities from any other class you want to create like exactly the character that you want. Yeah. And there's another skill tree at the end with like really advanced uh kind of generalist skills. Now, like my my playthrough like I knew that there were other skill trees coming and I always have decision paralysis with skill tree stuff and I'm not a a build person. I really don't like customizing builds. It stresses me out. So like um in in Dark Souls that's about as much customization as I want. Uh in Death's Gambit, there is a whole world of customizing that's available. For me, though, I didn't get enough skill points to really like feel good about picking anything from like the advanced skill trees. Like I wanted to max out my class's skill tree, and I wanted to get the abilities from like the generalist skill tree that felt good. And then I finished the game. Like soon after that, so I never like got the chance to dual class. I feel like that's something that you either need to go do some of the optional stuff to get extra skill points, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or maybe like continue through New Game Plus to keep getting skill points and keep filling out those skill trees. But I I didn't really this didn't really work for me, and it's partly my fault because I get overwhelmed by skill tree choices. But it's also, I feel like you just don't get enough skill points to really play around with this. I will say that I think that I think I do think that the third, the or sorry, the fourth, the the quote advanced skill tree. Um, uh-huh. I I could be wrong. I feel that the that the developers specifically stated they kind of had that in mind for people who were just going to keep playing the game up through New Game Plus. Mm-hmm. Which also fits with my experience as well. Like I, I did touch a couple things in the advanced skill tree, but very little uh, compared to other trees. I will also say one important detail to note about your primary class versus your secondary class is mm-hmm. you do not get the special class ability from your secondary class. Right. Right. So like to, so like if so like you know for in my case I rolled as an assassin and then later on I chose the death's acolyte as my secondary class. Because Death's Acolyte was my secondary class, I did not get the ability to create, you know, extra statues. You have to roll that as your primary class to get the, to the class ability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the other kind of like RPG thing is the classic Dark Souls style, like uh, level up your stats at the statues. Um, the stats are pretty standard for the most part vitality strength finesse endurance intellect haste uh, which ties into the abilities which we'll talk about in a second and 
Will. There's a stack called Will, and I don't know anything about that. That feels like a, like a, how oh, like an, a humanity in Dark Souls. Don't or don't feel a, bad because like, I only know a little <laughs> bit more than you do. <laughs> yeah, or it, it feels like a kind of like insight in Bloodborne or something like that. Like there's this extra stat that you have that you can play the entire game and not really think about it. Yeah, I mean, I I will say. One thing to note, a uh, difference between original game and Afterlife again, is this stat got a name change in Afterlife. In the original game, it was F-E-A, standing for fear, and mm-hmm. in Afterlife, they changed it to will. And uh, I get, and it's meant to represent the will of a spoiler character who we'll discuss later's influence over Okay. Here. Yeah. Uh, I see. Okay. So I'm like, I'm looking on the Fexter Life wiki right now, and it just says question mark after Will. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I guess uh, I guess not. So yeah, you you, uh, you get your essence, you level up at the, um, at the statues. One cool thing that Death's Gambit does is when you're fighting a boss, you get partial essence like during the fight. So let's say you get the boss down to like one third health, and then you die. You get, you get two thirds of the essence available, so it's it can kind of make a difference. Like you die against the boss, you get some reward for getting as far as you did. You can maybe go level up and then go fight the boss one level stronger. Uh, this is a very like it doesn't happen against regular enemies, only bosses. But I think this is cool. It's there were a couple times where I died, got that partial experience, went back and leveled up, and you know, even if it doesn't make a huge difference, you know, one level up is not going to, it's not adding 30% damage or something, but you, you do feel like, okay, I leveled up a few times. Let's go get that boss. One one thing I do want to point out about that. That's cool. Is that I feel like death's gambit more than a lot of other souls likes that have stat level ups is a lot more generous with level ups in general. Mm-hmm. It was, unless I was doing like a very, very tiny amount of damage to the boss before I was dying, it was very rare that dying after making some progress in the boss didn't net me at least, I'm going to say, two, three levels, you know, level ups that I could use. And even more so early in the game, because, you know, obviously, you know, it requires less essence to level up, you know, when you're lower leveled. Yeah. But the other, the other thing I think is important to point out is that even if, let's imagine, you get the boss down to one hit point and then you die and you get that big payout of essence and then yeah. you say, let's say you die another five times before you finally beat them, you still get a huge payout of essence for beating the boss. There, it, it, yeah. It, 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 at least in my opinion, like it, I, I never felt like 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 even like getting like getting that uh that slow trickle of essence like for making, you know, progress in the boss, it never felt like that was, you know, kind of taking away from the big, you know, money shot feeling of, you know, getting, That's you right. know, of getting a bunch of, you know, souls or essence from killing the boss. Like you, you still yeah. got tons from killing the boss. And I, I think that feels really good. You're right. Yeah. So you do get the, I mean, if you one shot the boss first try, you get that massive payout, but for a lot of the bosses, you are going to need to try them more than one time. And so, yeah, you're right you do still get that jackpot when you beat the boss. So it's, I mean, it's just one small way that Death's Gambit is trying to help you out a little bit if you're having trouble uh, with a boss. And we'll talk uh, in the spoiler section about a few bosses that gave me trouble. But 
Yeah. Uh, kind of like on that subject, transitioning into combat. Actually, we're going to take a little break and listen to some combat music from Death's Gambit, which is good. And then we'll come back and talk about combat. And we're back. Let's talk about the combat in Death's Gambit. So, if you've played a 2D Souls-like before, Salt and Sanctuary, um, Blasphemous, what else am I missing here? Dead Cells. Um, did you say Hollow Knight yet? <laughs> I did not say Hollow Knight, but that's because I don't personally, I don't lump, I don't put those two together in a combat way. But that's a digression that I don't want to get into right now. Mm-hmm. So um, the combat in death's gambit is what you would expect from a souls like type game and a Metroidvania type game. It is kind of deliberate in that way of like, you must be aware of what every single enemy in the game is doing. Button mashing and not paying attention to your stamina will get you killed. Not respecting the enemy's attacks will get you killed. So you it's it's not difficult. Most of the normal enemies I think are not that hard, especially if you've played some of these games before, but you you do need to be aware of what they're doing. So I actually I mentioned stamina. I want to talk about that real quick. In Dark Souls and Bloodborne and Oh, Salt and Sanctuary and stuff like that, if you run out of stamina, you have to kind of you have first of all you are like defenseless for a while and you have to wait for your stamina meter to regenerate and in bloodborne and stuff i'm using bloodborne because i'm playing bloodborne at the moment it takes a while for your stamina to regenerate in death's gambit it's like near instantaneous so you you don't want to run out of stamina but if you just like chill for a second your stamina meter will refill and you can get back to your combos. I think that that kind of plays into like the pace of combat that they want in this game. It is extremely generous when it comes to stamina regen, and that applies to both versions of the game. Okay, cool. From my experience. So the basic thing for the combat is uh, you can equip two weapons at one time. Uh, One of them is your basic like melee weapon, the other one, uh, for me, it was a bow. I always had a bow equipped. I was playing as the Death's Acolyte. The scythe and the bow were both governed by the finesse stat, so it was a really natural fit for that. Um, and, oh, I use that bow a lot. It's great to have a ranged attack, and I got a bow that had fire damage over time that really helped melt down some bosses. And so you can equip two weapons at a time, and you can equip up to four special abilities. And so one of your, like, controller buttons, I think on the Switch it was the X button, is your ability button. And then combined with triggers and stuff like that, you can do, I think, four special abilities. And this combat is all about 
getting abilities because a lot of your abilities will give you buffs to further buff abilities or damage or something like that depending on what class you're playing at least the sorry maybe i'm projecting the death's acolyte is really based on abilities uh, maybe you can speak to other classes and how the abilities work um i will say uh when i first played the game the original back in 2019 um I rolled a Death's Acolyte, and it was really focused on abilities. Mm -hmm. I will say that uh, abilities are still pretty important for the... uh, Abilities are pretty important all around. I think the difference is that with the Scythe, there's a real focus on DPS and reducing your cooldowns to use abilities more often. But one Mm -hmm. thing you'll notice... um, I guess we should have mentioned this in the section about the the, uh, classes. But, um, but But every single class has kind of a passive ability that says regain I, I forget what the um I forget what the ability bar is called or I don't know like mana maybe or something like that but um yeah, <laughs> yeah basically like at each class had a unique basic action you could do to incre- to get extra to to, be, to get extra you know um points for your ability bar so you could use your abilities so for example right. um killing enemies as the death's acolyte would give you would give you would, would uh, fill the ability bar um right. doing a uh pulling off uh pulling off a uh, close call dodges as the assassin would increase your ability bar there's another class where blocking increases your ability bar and each one each one had that where it was a specific basic action that every character has but they, but as that class, they kind of want you to focus specifically on that one, like as a way okay. to increase your ability bar to use abilities more often. Right. And that definitely like makes the classes feel distinct from each other. It's not like you're this type of melee class differentiated from that type of melee class only by like the weapon you're using. The uh, So like the ability and your like play style is really different for a lot of these classes. I actually had it in the notes here that resource is called skill points, oh, which you right. use for your yeah. abilities. Yeah. Yeah. So, and right, the death, so the death's acolyte uh, ability, you would get into this kind of loop of like you use the ability, which increases your DPS, and you have cooldowns on your abilities, and you can you reduce the cooldown for that ability, and you can keep stacking it over and over again until you kind of your your dps is raised up so high that you're just like just melting things in front of you it's kind of hard to get to that point but it is uh like that's like a high skill level thing that the class allows for and i know that the other classes all have like special ways to play like that what one thing i do want to touch on that you said about the uh, two weapons Mm -hmm. one of the new things they add in afterlife is that if you choose to have only one weapon equipped, um, you get a secondary attack by pressing the secondary the attack button where your second weapon would uh-huh. normally be, and uh-huh. that's uh, that's one reason why I didn't uh, I didn't have the experience that you know I didn't have anything to speak to the experience Dave had with the multiple class trees because once I got the second the secondary death acolyte class and I started using the scythe that was all I used I never ran the game with multiple weapons at once when I played Afterlife I did when I okay. played the original because it didn't have that um, it didn't have that you know special uh, new thing where you can get a secondary attack button with only one weapon equipped but Afterlife does and it's you know that can be pretty useful if for some reason you don't want to 
deal with, you know, having to level two different class trees or something to that effect for different weapons. Yeah. And the other part of the combat is your kind of defensive abilities. So I count four ways that you can uh, be on defense in this game. So it's a 2D game, so jumping is a big thing. There's going to be attacks that you need to jump over. You also have a dodge roll, a block. You can carry a shield. Uh, You can also do a perfect block with the shield if you time it correctly and get like a counterattack. And you can parry. And in my game... I never parried a single time. I blocked all the time. That was my defensive thing. Uh, I actually didn't know you can parry until I started seeing it in, like, uh, I think, like, ability or item descriptions. One of those two. I was like, oh, there's a parry in this game? I just, I never did. So, suffice to say, you have lots of defensive options more than most games like this. Okay, I think that, um... Just because you just mentioned it, I think one important thing to know, especially for people who are familiar with Dark Souls, is you mentioned that you can carry a shield. The shield does not take up a weapon slot. The shield yeah. is a completely separate gear slot that you can always carry, that where you that is only for the shield, and you can always have a shield regardless of what else you're carrying. So, right. like, Good point. Un- so unlike something like Dark Souls, where you might need to make the decision between. Uh, wielding a separate offhand um, weapon or du- or do or you know or two-handing a single weapon, um, you will always have access to the shield and the things that the shield can do um, in right. Death's Gambit. Mm-hmm. I will say that uh, I did not experiment much with parrying either, especially since they had that counterattack. You know, where, where it was basically just a per. It, it was very strange. It, it's one of the only games where I've seen them separate parrying from perfect blocking you know in this kind of game i feel i feel like in a like in dark soul like you know in dark souls you know the the parry that is your perfect block that's like that's all you have basically you know where you have the shield down and then suddenly you do the you know the i'm gonna do the dorky you know thing you know with the well with my hand that nobody can see Mm -hmm. um with the (laughs) shield whereas in death's gambit if i had to hazard a guess because i didn't use parry much at all if I had to hazard a guess, I would suggest that parrying is safer with less of a reward, whereas the perfect block and counterattack is something that's much more dangerous but gives you a much higher payout. Like, it's mm-hmm. even shown visually. Like, you know, they, there is a specific enemy that tutorializes you on the on the counterattack. And, yeah. you know, it's a it's the only enemy I was ever able to actually counterattack, honestly. I didn't try it much with other enemies, but where they do a very, very clearly telegraphed uh, special attack that you can perfect counterattack. And you block it and then press the prompt and your character just does this kind of like almost like chrono trigger cross slash, basically. Like they just kind of like, yeah. you know, fly across the screen in multiple directions, paint, paint a big old X on the enemy and they're dead. Yeah. And that attack is super strong that like... Maybe that's why, and I, it hurts I other enemies difficulty. that are caught in the crossfire as well. Yeah, and it's—I mean, it was basically mandatory for me to do big, like chunk damage against bosses. Is to use that like perfect block counterattack. That sounds really fun. I'm jealous. I should have tried it. <laughs> so yeah, like, um, kind of in summary about the combat, um, I think that the combat is fun. That's number one. It's fun. It 
it feels fair. There's a good block or a good mix of like ways that you can avoid damage. Like I dodge rolled a lot, of course, uh, dodging, jumping and blocking for me. Um, I had an issue where like, there are a lot of enemies that like they designed so that they will hit you once on the right side and then they'll, they'll move and hit you from the left side. And so you need to block right, then block left. And it's kind of difficult to like, because most games don't do that, especially, um, especially these kinds of games. Like this, this game plays a bit faster than a lot of like souls like type games do. So I was often like facing the wrong direction, like blocking right. And they just, you know, smack me in the back. And that happened a lot, especially against, uh, bosses that feels bad. But overall, I think the combat is super, super fun. It gives you a lot of room for expression to like play with the abilities and stuff that you want to play with. It's, it's good, good combat. Yeah. I, um, uh, as far as the, uh, different directions thing, I can't speak to that because I didn't do much blocking. I basically relied on dodging for everything. That's just, that's just how I play these games in general. Like I, you know, I, I kind of, before I played Dark Souls, I kind of came from the school of games like, you know, Bayonetta and so on, where, you know, it is just dodging, you know, like as opposed to, so, you know, it's kind it's kind of more, it kind of, it kind of fits more to my play style, just kind of dodge and jump and that kind of stuff. But, um, I will say that, uh, semi-related but i guess maybe not related enough is uh they did give you the ability to change direction while attacking in afterlife that wasn't a thing in the original like the original was a little more finicky with that i'm guessing they didn't apply to that that to blocking considering what you just said um but you know that that was one change they made um yeah, I yeah, I I wish I could speak more to your experience, but I did not do much blocking. So I That's can't. okay. Yeah. So do you um I mean you are I know that you really really value uh stylish combat and yes. combat that allows you to play in a very cool way and express the way that you want to play. So how do you think this game stacks up? I think it stacks up pretty well because because like so many of and I think I think we just kind of demonstrated this with the difference in our experience is that so many of the mechanics are just kind of like, you know, oh, pick the ones you care about in a way. Right. Like, so, you know, like I just completely ignored blocking because I didn't want to do it. And I, and I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like I was handicapping myself at all by doing that. Like, I, I didn't feel like I was doing a challenge run. I just felt like I was doing the, I just felt like I was doing the method that I personally preferred. And, you know, like, like, again, like the defensive options, like you said it before, there's like four, there's, there's like four bespoke, four or five bespoke defensive maneuvers and not all of them are acquired. Like, you know, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of them are just, you know, you know, what you just, which would just choose the ones you want to use. And then, you know, the, I think the abilities are great. Um, I think, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like someone who's maybe a more slower methodical, kind of souls player could probably uh enlighten me on this i don't know if you're one of them um but uh yeah (laughs) but um (laughs) but you know i did appreciate that there was a compared to dark souls there was a capacity for really fast dps focused uh, frantic combat without feeling Mm -hmm. like i was relegated to a really low damage speedy weapon like the like the death sack like the like the scythe the scythe is a has the capacity to be a really fast weapon that does insane DPS 
it mm-hmm. isn't a it is not a light hitting weapon by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's it's not like it's not like double daggers or something. Yeah, like yeah, and that. even and even the daggers, like you know, because I rolled an assassin in my afterlife playthrough. Even like the daggers, like when, especially when you're using all your abilities, they do real work. Like you know, like in the DPS department. Yeah, I would be curious because there's like there's a class that just has a great sword. There's a class with a big old axe. Like I would be curious to play as one of those or like uh there's the the mage class which i actually started a new game and played a couple hours of which plays completely different from the uh the other classes in like even its abilities are not just like you know oh this ability is a fire spell this ability is a lightning spell it's not like that it's much more creative than that so like there's huge room for like picking exactly the type of class and then within that class exactly the type of play style that you want to play which is is very cool and again like this is a really small team this is not from software here making this game it's 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 amazing to me the amount of depth that a game from such a small team has it's really really good um may i make a brief aside since you brought up the axe class yeah sure okay so I did this on my last playthrough of the original. The, the the one that Dave's talking about where you start with an axe is called the Blood Knight. And the Blood Knight's special class ability, it is if you play Bloodborne, it literally just gives you the rally mechanic. If you when you get hit, if you counterattack quickly enough, you will regain your lost health. And right. one thing I found especially overpowered, and I don't know how much this applies to afterlife i but just based on what i'm reading i feel like it still does is is choosing the blood knight and then rolling the assassin as your secondary class and using mm-hmm. the daggers as your primary weapon you are never going to lose any health like may, maybe oh, not right. literally but like every as long as you just keep like whacking away with those knives and using like that one ability you have where you just kind of stab with the knives a million times or whatever you're just going to be constantly regaining health like right. just as an example, just just to make one example of the kind of overpowered like multi-class builds you can make in this game. Yeah, and uh, I looked up on like Reddit and stuff or like wikis, like kind of class builds and you know optimized stuff like that, which is I I kind of just did it out of curiosity be- or like just as like general advice, like what abilities should I try to use? Because like I said. I'm not somebody who's going to like tinker with stuff like that and try to find like some game breaking build or something like that. But I do, I love how there are just so many ways to make these builds that are really, really awesome and fun and effective in the game. Yeah, the the build variety is pretty great. Yeah. Let's talk about the bosses, which is a, you know, this is a Souls-like game. Bosses are a big part of the genre in death's gambit i count 20 bosses some of which are optional which means that i did not do them some of which are tied to like the uh true ending uh, that you can go through and i did not get the true ending so i didn't do those bosses we'll talk about that in the spoiler section the bosses in the game range from dual type fights against characters that are your size with similar abilities to you to fights where you're fighting these massive things and the camera pulls back and you get this really great sense of scale 
to almost like Castlevania style, like bullet hell screen full of projectiles that you have to dodge type stuff. There's a lot of variety in the bosses. So I'm not going to go any further on that, but Moon, how do you feel about the bosses and the difficulty of the bosses? Well, one thing about the bosses that I think just a fact that I think is important to note and we can thank Bonfireside Chat for doing the research on this one. This is a detail I remember from uh, when they covered the game is that the game, the original Death Gambit, it apparently started as a list of boss ideas. Okay. So where like, you know, it like it like at its core, at its inception, the game was originally, okay, what are a bunch of cool boss fights we could make if we made a video game? Right. And I think it shows. Like, I don't think there is a, like, like there are some bosses that, you know, had some issues some that were better than others some that were there were there were a couple there were a couple that i found especially infuriating um but like i don't think there are any bosses that i would describe as just like bad ideas or dud ideas like all of them had like some interesting hook to them Mm -hmm. and like you know I'm, I'm i'm thinking them all in my head and like there aren't any where like i can honestly like i mean it would take me a few minutes because i have a bad memory but like if I was asked to list them all, like maybe not by name, but just like based on what they looked like and what they did, I could probably name every single boss and tell you like what was special about them or what was unique yeah. about them, which is not something I could say about a lot of games. Like, you know, like, you know, not, not like, like a lot of games where, which isn't even necessarily, I don't even say that necessarily as a damnation of other games. It's just that I think that the, the concept just the conceptualization of the bosses in death's gambit is especially good totally agree the kind of like the theming for the bosses and their designs i mean like i said there are dual types where you're fighting against characters your size but they're all really distinct from each other both in the way they look and the way the fights go like for example there's one of them uh, that you fight a couple of times, which is someone your size, and it's kind of a kind of melee character just like you. Another one I'm thinking of is a super long-range boss where you have to kind of dodge these, like, sniper shots from this boss. And so even within that, like, subgroup of bosses that are your size, which most of them are not, there is a lot of variety there. And then the bigger bosses, they're all pretty distinct from each other. Yeah, and and I guess to answer the question that I didn't before, I think the difficulty is generally just about right. Um, again, there were a couple bosses. There, there was one, there was like there was one optional challenge boss, and then one late game boss that I found especially tough that took a while. But for the most part, like you know, the challenge felt about right. Like you know, that's not to say I didn't struggle with a lot of them, but. It was very rare that I felt like I was struggling in a way that was like, come on, man, this is, this is, this is, this is horse manure, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I agree. I think most of the bosses have a very fair difficulty level. I, uh, I, I don't like, I, I don't consider myself to be like amazing at these games, especially 2d. Um, I'm much better at 3d souls like games than I am 2d. There's something about, only being able to dodge in one direction, I guess, or in one dimension that uh, really fucks me up in a lot of games. 
But I, maybe it's because of all those other defensive maneuvers that you have in Death's Gambit. I, I beat most of the bosses on the first try in this game, like half of them at least. There were two or three that I had to fight like 10 times or more. One of them I think is complete bullshit and I hate it. I'll talk about it in the spoiler section. Right. The other ones I thought were very fun like that. And th- if you if you really like Souls-like games, this is something that a lot of people like is that like there's this very difficult boss. Each time I fight it, I learn a little bit more. I execute a little bit better. And then you get through it eventually. Maybe it takes you five tries. Maybe it takes you 15. But the process of getting through that feels really great. And then when you do beat the boss... You get that great feeling like, I learned that, I did that. A couple of the bosses in Death's Gambit really gave me that feeling. So overall, I'm very positive on the bosses, and I'm uh, I'm pretty picky when it comes to boss fights. I don't think most games do boss fights very well, especially in the 2D Souls-like genre. Uh, I've had some very frustrating experiences, and Death's Gambit was overall very, very positive. Uh, one one thing I do want to note that I think does set Death Scambit's uh, bosses apart from a lot of bosses in general in video games is that the bosses do respect status effects. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like they like like there there are multiple abilities I had you know in the game like you know whether it be like literal abilities or just like you know weapon perks that kind of stuff where like you could apply bleed bleed is the one I use most or you could apply like or there's another ability that you could use to apply like a pretty long lasting stun effect on an enemy and bosses mm-hmm. respect that like you know you'll have a big old boss and I'll you and I'll use like the ability where you know my knives just kind of like slash through and do huge damage and then he gets stunned for like 5 seconds and that boss will get stunned and that is not something that would happen in a whole lot of video games and same thing with bleed which by the way they 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 also without getting the spoilers they they prioritize the mechanical um sense of the status effect over the literal status effect the, or, or over the literal sense of the status effect so <laughs> yeah, even though right. it's called bleed if you're fighting an enemy if you're fighting an enemy or a boss that doesn't have flesh per se it doesn't matter you can still give them the bleed status effect it's fine right. they decide to prioritize the mechanical sense over the literal like logical narrative sense basically yeah yeah exactly and I, I mentioned earlier, I had this fire bow. And so my boss strategy was like, okay, lay down some fire on the boss. It's going to do some like chip damage over time. It's not, it's not significant against most of the bosses, but like over time that fire damage would take off the amount of damage I would do in like two or three, you know, weapon combos. So it's good. It was really helpful. And that's a good point. I really hate it when bosses like when bosses have no reason to be immune to status effects but the game is like nah fuck you this is a boss you can't put poison on it i think that's very lame and death's gambit uh respects that yeah it's it's, it's just it's yet another way in which the game both respects your capacity for expressive play and also just kind of like wants you to succeed like this is a game that's full of that's just full of like throwing the player a bone you know whenever mm-hmm. they need it yeah. And in a game that's as difficult as this, or with some of the bosses that are as difficult as some of these are, it's much appreciated. So let's, uh, we're going to take a short little break. We're going to come back and talk about 
the last big part of the mechanics, which is the Metroidvania elements. Okay, we're back. Hope you enjoyed the music there. Metroidvania. So, first of all, am I correct in like remembering or researching that the original version of this game was not really a Metroidvania? Okay, so the original version of the game, it was almost a Metroidvania in the same way that Dark Souls is almost a Metroidvania, the first one. And by that, what I mean is that it did have the interconnected world with the bespoke areas. It did have the kind of like, it did have the kind of like nonlinear exploration with you trying to find your way through. It did, the main thing, the only real thing that it lacked was movement, was like kind of like movement abilities that it would use to get to new areas. Right. Um, and the original Death Scam, it was just like that. It had the big bespoke connected world with different areas that you explored and did kind of like action platformer type, you know, things in. But it didn't have any Metroidvania upgrades. And then in Afterlife, they went back and they reconsidered the progression for the entire game and added a bunch of, to be fair, frankly, bog standard Metroidvania upgrade abilities. Like there there are a bunch of uh, different abilities that you get them from bosses. I'm pretty sure you get all of them from bosses, actually, where you beat a boss and you'll get a new movement ability that will allow you to that that generally but not always has a dual um a dual uh, a traversal function and a combat function of some sort. Yeah, and I and I was going to mention like that's one of the best parts about this. Something that I think the best Metroidvanias do is that your kind of Metroidvania abilities that unlock your ability to go to another part of the map are also useful in exploration. They're useful in combat and in Death's Gambit. I think it does that really really well. So you get like your double jump your air dash your uh you get an infinite double jump at some point all of those things uh, maybe not the infinite double jump actually no it is never mind it is in a boss i think you use that but the air dash and the double jump and stuff you're going to use those in boss fights too it's something that i think like sets the best metroidvanias apart is you're not picking up this thing this item or this like ability that is only useful to unlock doors. Yeah, um, I will, I will, I, I will say it's funny. You, it's funny you did hesitate on the infinite double jump part, and that is like the one that I do kind of criticize as not really like aside from like the one boss where it is useful and it is very good in that boss. It is like purely like a traversal ability and just kind of like, you know, and on top of that, it's contextual. You can only use it where there's like, you know, the fruits 
that right, you can use, right. which is, which, you know, makes it feel less like a good proper ability and more like just like a kind of like limited extension of an ability you already have in the double jump. Yeah. It's it's like it's like it's like it's like imagine imagine if the space if the space jump in Metroid made you uh, have to like if Samus just had to like chow down fruits every time that she jumped up to uh... <laughs> So like that that infinite double jump is more for like platforming challenges yeah. and stuff. But the other abilities are I mean especially like the air dash and double jumping is mandatory for me in combat to use yeah. that. I, so, I do I do want to another original versus afterlife difference I want to point out is the air dash of all these new Metrovania abilities. The air dash is the only one that was in the original game. In the original game, it was an optional it was an optional um talent on your talent tree. And oh. you know that and you know, obviously everyone loved it and made a beeline for it. So they said, okay, okay, we're just gonna make this a mandatory ability you get literally almost as soon as you start the game basically like you get it from the first from one of the first bosses so right yeah there's and like i should say there's another metroidvania ability that allows you to get through narrow uh passages like the morph ball in metroid and i never got that so like there are optional we shall talk about too. that in the spoiler section that one is a weird one. <laughs> yeah we can talk about that later so uh, the other key part of a Metroidvania is that you're going to be spending time exploring. The game wants you to explore and use these abilities. So exploration has to be good and it has to be rewarding for it to be a fun Metroidvania. And in my opinion, uh, this game is really fun to explore. And I think that the items that you find, the treasures, are fantastic most of the time. Like we talked about those plume upgrades or I don't know if we actually talked about it in the plume section. You don't start out with your full arsenal of plumes. You find them out in the world. Sometimes you get them from beating bosses. Sometimes you find them from exploring. And finding them while exploring is so good. Just like finding an Estus Shard in Dark Souls 3 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, we it's did really briefly good. touch on that earlier, but only a little bit. And that, you know, ties in, that ties into the whole, like, you know, set, uh, plume augmentation like you know for for you know for the extra dps you can't just start out the game out the gate with a full 150 percent damage boost right <laughs> like you know like you know because you don't have enough you don't have enough plumes to do that you know but and you know i will say at least personally i did find it easy to find all of them just to make that clear like by the time i got thinking about it, i did have all the plumes so yeah i I'm pretty sure I had all of them or maybe I was missing one or something like that. I never felt like I didn't have enough. Yeah. You know, you can also find secret areas in exploring or optional areas. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would call them secret secret. It's not like finding the beehive in hollow Knight, but there are optional areas of the game that you use your Metroidvania abilities to get to, and I think that's cool. You know, designers yep. are going to make this level and just be like, you know, if you get the up, if you get the upgrade and you're curious and you can see, you know, the environment telling you like, hey, use your infinite double jump here. There's something. Uh, you'll find this extra area. I think that kind of stuff is cool. Yeah. Um, and since we are talking about like, you know, traversal to get the new places, one thing that is not a Metroidvania upgrade that I do want to talk about that was in both the original and in Afterlife is mm -hmm. whenever you attack in midair, you get a tiny little like boost, uh, boost of um, of a vertical height. Yeah, 
And so there are more, and like they're much more plentiful, plen- and and these are much more plentiful in the original game because in the original game, that and the air dash were the only real like advanced traversal abilities you had. But there are multiple, like there are mul- there are multiple like you know collectibles and hidden things in in the game where you're just barely you're just barely too low to get to them or barely too far away to get to them, but you can like attack in midair and that'll give you a tiny little boost to get either somewhere further away or something just a tiny bit higher up. And so it's this, it's this cool thing that the game, I don't think the game ever actually tells you about that. I think there might be like a hidden uh, hint somewhere that tells you about it, but it is just this kind of like thing where you can notice and kind of exploit it, which is kind of cool. They definitely do give you a tip. It's not like a big, you know, glowing sign that tells you to do it, I don't think, but the game does tell you in some way because I remember oh, okay. reading right. about it. And it, that kind of thing is something that I probably yeah. wouldn't figure out on my own. You know what? I'm actually remembering that now that you mention it. Pretty certain that hint is only in Afterlife. In the original, okay. they just kind of let you figure it out, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on that, though. Gotcha. So let's... Uh, putting all those elements together, how do you feel about this game as a Metroidvania? When, you know, obviously we're we're if you can't tell by now both of us really like this game a lot so how do you feel about this game as a metroidvania when stacked up with the hollow knights and metroids and things like that okay um all right i guess it's time for me to sound mean um (laughs) the uh i will say that you know it's a game that wasn't a metroidvania that was turned into a metroidvania right Mm -hmm. and it kind of shows because Basically, all the upgrades are, like, really, really bog-standard. Like, almost almost all the Metroidvania upgrades are things we've all... Are pretty basic things we've already seen. Like, and even, like, directly lifted from, like, Dead Cells and, you know, Hollow Knight especially. Like, you know, the... You have, like, the... You have the downward smash that's literally just the Dead Cells downward smash. Like, the, the double jump is... Even down to the animation, it is the Hollow Knight, you know, double jump, basically. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, and then you know, and a whole and one thing we didn't discuss before is that um, there are a lot of non-Metroidvania abilities that are treated with that are treated and rewarded in the same fashion as the Metroidvania abilities. So while some bosses will give you like, oh, the double jump or the air dash, the um, like you know, you'll you'll be another boss, and then it's oh, you got the second skill, you got the second uh, you got the second class tree, you know, things like right. that. Which I, this all sounds da- like I'm damning the game, but I will say that the game is aware of it is aware of how like maybe bog standard and less than stellar these elements are, and it kind of papers over them in a way that feels satisfying and is non-subtractive from the game. So like uh one one thing I hate in some Metroidvanias, um like now you know I was I was I was gonna bring up an indie game and this is, as an example, but that makes me feel bad, so I'm not gonna call it by name. But but one thing I do dislike about some Metroidvanias and um some Metroidvanias that I think are a bit lesser is um is they'll kind of have a map design or a world design that's really wide and not really tall. Yeah. So like everything feels kind of like stretched out without much, instead of being kind of compressed, instead of compressing the same amount of space into like, you know, a smaller, you know, just kind of a smaller like cubic volume basically. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
Death's Gambit does that. It has a really wide world. It does have some worlds that go above and below, but it is mostly you traveling from the far west to the far east, essentially. Right. And But they do have that awesome underground network that they added, which, you know... Which you, where you can base, basically there's kind of this underground highway where you can travel with your horse throughout the entire world. And it does the kind of like Dark Souls trick where like when you get to a new area, you'll find a little underground cavern. And when you go down there, there'll be a there'll be a one way door that you can open up that allows you to bring your horse through it so that you can easily travel like kind of like a hub, kind of like a, a spokes on a hub. Like, you know, travel through all the areas you've already visited. And in addition to just kind of being a relatively painless way of doing it without fast travel, which, you know, we'll talk about that in the spoiler section, but like without fast travel. But also it's just, it's really moody and like useful on its own. Like there are cool things in that underground tunnel you can see and do. Yeah. we You mentioned fast travel. There is fast travel. You mm-hmm. unlock it extremely late in the game, so for most of your playthrough, effectively, there is no fast travel, so that underground tunnel where you can ride your horse, basically the entire like horizontal length of the map is uh, very, very, very helpful. Yeah, so. My opinion, I I didn't really have a problem with the, like, this, the wide, not tall map. Um, because of that horse tunnel I think if that horse tunnel wasn't there that would have really pissed me off but I didn't have an issue with that and basically what I'm looking for in a metroidvania is like the best metroidvanias give me this compulsion to explore especially when I pick up a new ability I immediately think like I remember those three places where I needed a double jump I'm going back there right now to take the double jump and see what I find. It was one of the best parts of Hollow Knight, and I got that same feeling in Death's Gambit. Like, when I got the air dash, uh, maybe it was the double jump, the sec, whatever the second upgrade you get is, I went back through the entire map that I'd gone through to that point with that ability just to clean up, get items and stuff like that, and I unlocked the, you know, the next place on the critical path, and I found other places that I needed more abilities to get through, and so it's like this constant loop of like explore, hit that dead end, then go down the critical path, get your new upgrade, then go back and explore again. And I got the best of that from Death's Gambit. So it worked for me a lot as a Metroidvania. It is be- it is one of those games that I would still recommend to you if you like Metroidvanias, even if it's not necessarily stellar at the Metroidvania elements, because... At the very, because at the very least, the ways in which it's less than stellar don't really get in the way because of other decisions they made. And it's just overall, oh, yeah. like, it is still a good, like, even absent of being a Metroidvania, like, you know, even before it was a Metroidvania, they were told this is still a good, you know, big old interconnected world, you know, action platformy game that you can play, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, it's still good at those things that aren't, you know, that aren't Metroidvania about it. And frankly, it's a, just because they kind of injected the Metroidvania elements after the fact, it's kind of a minor miracle that that part of it turned out as well as it did, in my opinion. Yeah. And once again, I want to bring up that, like, you would, you know, well, Hollow Knight was also an indie game, a small team doing that. But, like, if you want to compare Death's Gambit to Metroid, we talked about Metroid Dread a little bit, or you mentioned Metroid Dread earlier. Mm-hmm. I got the same great feelings of exploration in 
Death's Gambit that I did playing Metroid Dread, which for again for such a small team, it's uh, it's frankly uh, incredible that they're able to do this. I would agree. Let's uh, let's move into our kind of final thoughts on Death's Gambit before the spoiler section. Kind of final thoughts in summary for anyone who's going to tap out now. You've heard us talk about the game. You you want to play the game? Let's give our final thoughts. So I will kick to you first, Moon. In summary, how do you feel about Death's Gambit? I would say it is. I would say it is. Um, I don't think. I I'm not sure. I could say that it dethrones Hollow Knight, but it definitely is up there with Hollow Knight as one of my favorite, you know, Souls likes or Souls adjacent games. At least in the, uh, at least in like you know terms of two D ones or you know games that are you know related to Dark Souls in some way. Mm-hmm. Because even even though I I, I like Souls likes and, and I do often you know play I do often not as much as I used to but. I do tend to seek them out and look for them, you know, because I want to chase that whale. You know, Bloodborne is my favorite game of all time. So I'm always trying to find, you know, something that gives me that same feeling. Um, Death's Gambit is the only is the only one that I've not by From Software that I played and beat three times. And yeah, (laughs) I know that's and I know part of that is because there was a huge update. But it's like, you know, even Hollow Knight, you know, I love Hollow Knight only beating it twice, (laughs) you know, like. Uh, Dead Cells, well, I mean, Dead Cells doesn't count. You you have to kind of, you beat that game a million times just by playing it. Right. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, I'm just blubbering at this point. You know, I kind of gave most of my thoughts as we went on, but it is very solid and I highly recommend it. Um, I would say uh, as far as price goes, at full price, it's already more than reasonable. You know, I think it's a, I don't know if it's different on consoles, but I know on PC, it's $20 full price. Yeah, same on Switch. Okay, yeah, anything below that is a steal. Just gonna throw that out there. Like, it is already a bargain, and anything below that, like, like you, like you see, you see it for even like three, four dollars off. It's like that is like instant buy, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, same. I have a very complicated history with two D Souls likes and like some Metroidvanias, and like. I there's there are points when I like because I I play a lot of these kinds of games and there are points where I think like the version of the this genre that exists in my head is better than the reality of it. I relate to that. I've played a lot of Metroidvanias that I just don't like, and two D Souls likes. I talked about like my struggle with difficulty in that before. The only one that I could beat uh, was Blasphemous before, and Blasphemous plays very differently from Death's Gambit. But uh, Death's Gambit, for, for me, had the fun and challenging but rewarding combat that I want from Souls-likes with the kind of uh, great exploration, fun exploration, fun traversal that the best Metroidvanias do. So it hit both parts of that. And that's why I wanted to do this uh, for this show. I wanted to talk about Death's Gambit because I think this game rules and I don't you know, other than Bonfire Side Chat, I've never seen another podcast, like gaming podcast that I listen to. No one else is talking about Death's Gambit, so I wanted to talk about it. So, um, yeah, I think this game is awesome. And like Moon said, it's 20 bucks, even on Switch with the Switch tax. It's still only 20 bucks. And I definitely feel like I got my entertainment dollar out of that for sure. And one more time, 
this is an extremely small team this is a huge like accomplishment this game is awesome it's like i i know i had to wait for a long time for the afterlife update like a year and a half from when i like discovered the game to when i decided or when i was actually able to play it but uh, these developers really put the time in to make sure that this game is exactly it feels like this is the game they wanted to make and it's really really awesome so definite recommend from me too if you like metroidvanias or if you like uh, souls-like combat so we're going to do some housekeeping before the spoiler section so if you're going to tap out now because you don't want spoilers thank you for listening if you would like to support the show the best thing you can do is to tell friends about it tell your friends there's a podcast talking about a cool 2d souls-like metroidvania game that not a lot of people are talking about And like I always say, if your friends run the other direction when you recommend a podcast to them, chase after them and uh, (laughs) they'll forgive you in time. And the the other things you can do is to subscribe, leave a rating and review if your platform allows it, and get on the Tales from the Backlog social media pages. Links are in the episode description, but on Facebook and Instagram, it's at Tales from the Backlog. And on Twitter, it is, let's see if I can remember this, it is TFTBLPod on Twitter. Yes. Uh, Moon, do you want to direct people to anything that you're doing or social media or Twitch or anything like that? You know, I'm very much I'm very much someone who uh, wishes they were doing a bunch of uh, cool stuff on the internet, but I'm not really. I'm just kind of a dude right now. Aspiring podcaster for sure, but, you know, I'm... <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a dude. Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, you can be, you can uh, follow me on Twitter if you want. That's a uh, at sss underscore moonborn. Uh, moonborn has an e at the end, like bloodborn. And yeah, that's uh, that, I guess that's really all I have to plug. You know, it is, it is literally just me having a regular old Twitter ta- account and uh, you know, gay, you know, like <laughs> like liking fan art and getting into dumb arguments occasionally. So nothing special to see there. But if you really want to, you can. <laughs> You can follow me there. <laughs> the social media experience. Yeah. So I'll uh, I'll put a link to that in the episode description as well. Okay, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, it's spoiler time for Death's Gambit. We are back, and it's spoiler time for Death's Gambit. We are going to start by talking about the story in Death's Gambit, and Moon is going to help me out because, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, these types of stories that are kind of somewhat indirectly told, they just wash over me. I just kind of experience these games and like the vibe uh, that the games give. Like uh, Moon said, Bloodborne is his favorite game of all time. It's probably also my favorite game of all time. And I still just like kind of sit in the story and kind of soak it in, but I I don't follow it super closely. So anyway, in Death's Gambit, the directly told story is that Soren is resurrected by death, like we said, 
uh, in a failed invasion to get to the source of immortality. Death tells him that he has to go destroy the source of immortality. Soren also has the goal, which we didn't mention before, of finding his mother. And during the game, you get flashbacks uh, of the past, like uh, it, it feels like flashbacks of like moms riding out to battle. Soren is like one last conversation before she goes. Uh, you get some of those flashbacks. And to be clear, she's riding off on the expeditions to find the source of immortality. Right. These are like constant expeditions happening over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I believe I believe the story literally calls them the the just literally just the expeditions or the great expeditions, something to that effect. Yeah. Right. So, with the source of immortality, there are the, all of these characters that are immortal. Um, the bosses that you fight, most of them are immortals. So when you kill them, we should have mentioned this before the spoilers section, but you can fight them again in these like heroic rematches. And uh, we'll talk about that. In yeah, the... stay tuned. That becomes a little bit important later on. <laughs> yeah, later on. That a little bit important. Yeah. And I'm definitely not bitter about that. So <laughs> um the story setups explain why Soren can be resurrected, why you can do rematches with the bosses, and your kind of big bad, the villain, is called the Endless, who is kind of like a, I just describe her as a female anime warrior type. She's got on this badass armor. She, she's female anime Darth Vader, basically, Qu- quite literally yeah. in some ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and she is trying to uh, stop you from destroying the source of immortality she's trying to preserve it and unclear through most of the story if she's if she's trying to like take over and control it i was unclear on this the implication i got and uh you may remember early in the game there's that kind of like beautifully rendered like cut scene where endless is just kind of like talking about how you know all despair will end, you know, and all, you know, the pain of death will end or whatever. That was a new thing they added to Afterlife, I think, specifically to address the concern that they didn't really know what Endless was doing. Um, yeah. But she, but I'm pretty, yeah, but it looks like she's trying to claim the source of immortality, basically, from, you know, Aldwin. Right. But, uh, yeah, sorry. I think you asked me a question just before. What was that question again? <laughs> I was just kind of confirming, like, yeah whether my read on it was correct. Oh, yeah. Or... Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yes. So the story kind of takes a backseat for the most part. You have your kind of characters that are helping or hindering you. There's, uh, I forget the lizard guy's name, who's kind of, who was like uh, your I commander. I believe it's uh, Vrail, I think. Vrail, yeah. And he was your commander in the expedition. He certainly talks to you like he's your superior and then there's another character named Ioni, I think is how you pronounce her name. Yeah. Who's yeah. a, she starts out as a boss. She's a fun boss fight. And then she joins your side eventually. She was on Endless's side and then she joins you uh, eventually. So it's like those three characters. Those are the main ones. It's Soren, Ioni, and Vrail, right? Yes, that is correct. Those are those, and and I guess you know, death. Of course, those those are your main characters. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, Vrail and Ioni, those are your primary like buddy characters. Like you know, they they are the primary members of your fellowship. You know, so to speak. Right. And so you go through the game. Uh, you're looking for mom, and also looking for the source of immortality. 
And of course, I mean, you, you should have guessed this, but your mom is dead. As you go through the game, you find out that she died during, probably during these expeditions. And the game does something really cool, which is you think you fight the final boss, which is, um, oh, you're fighting Thalamus is his name, right? The Thalamus. Yeah. The the kind of, yeah, the the kind of God, the evil God of fear basically, or something to that effect. Yeah. Right. And so you fight him and you, you think the game's over and and you still haven't resolved some of these other storylines, but you fight him and you actually, you get the credits and the game kicks you to the main menu, but the main menu has changed. It's a lot darker, uh, I think it even does like some screen glitches. It's very much Batman uh, Arkham Asylum with Scarecrow glitching your game out. Yeah. Like it is very, very clearly like th- that, like something I was inspired by that kind of thing, basically. Yeah. And was this in the original game? No. Um, no, the original game. Um, and uh, I guess to make just a brief correction, the, the, the segment you're talking about, that happens before you fight, uh, fight Thalamus. Like it happens. Oh, when, it happens when uh, you fight Endless, and then Thalamus basically consumes you and takes you to his realm. Right. Which is another thing they changed from the original. Because in the original, you could just die to Ioni there. Whereas in Afterlife, they make you uh, fight. They make you fighter as a full boss. One change I'm not a fan of personally, but that's neither here or there. <laughs> okay. So, kind of after this, you know kick back to the main menu this like kind of oh i don't i I don't want to call it meta but you know anytime a game kicks you back to the main menu and changes the main menu on you i don't know kind of reminds you that you're playing a game a little bit it's a i don't know a great way to describe that but after it does that you wake up in the afterlife which is like a underwater Hell world. Oh, you're, you're talking about a Yilmoth. Um, the afterlife is actually a separate place we will not go to until the true ending. Oh, okay. I yeah, thought y- that was yeah. Yil- Yilmoth is Thalamus's nightmare. Is basically kind of like okay. a version of okay. Thalamus's nightmare realm. If I'm not understand, if I'm not misunderstanding, okay. yeah. No, that does make sense. Yeah, because the because the afterlife the afterlife is death's domain. Yeah. So, like, as you're walking through that um, kind of nightmare realm. They have all these like NPCs that are just yelling like in pain, like Thalamus, like that, like yeah. please, you know. Yeah, but a bunch of souls he is torturing, basically. Right, and that's kind of what the, um, it's like what's happening in this realm is people are just being tortured for all eternity, and he's like, is he feeding on their fear or their pain yeah, or something like fe- that? Yeah, he's feeding on their fear. Basically, he's kind of like. He's kind of feeding on their souls, and the reason that Thalamus is so obsessed with immortals in particular is because he can feed on their souls forever, basically. Like, that is why he's so obsessed with Soren and Endless, and that's why he wants, like, immortality to be something that kind of takes over the world. Like is kind of his end game. He want he he want he wants everyone to be immortal because that means more souls that he can just feast on forever without running out. Right, exactly. So, this is like the first time in the game where we find out like how well we've gotten hints before, but this is one of the explicit ways that being immortal is like the worst torture imaginable in Death's Gambit. Yep, being immortal in the Death's Gambit world is 
something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. It's, I mean, you get, you either go to like Thalamus gets a hold of your soul and is basically feeding on your, your pain and fear forever. Or there is like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, the, the world that they're living in is like this. I mean, it's, it's being torn apart by these expeditions and these immortals fighting all the time. There doesn't seem to be a lot of happiness in this world. Yeah, the, the thing, like, Immor- you, you kind of touched on this briefly at the very beginning of the episode, where there's very much this kind of through line of immortality as it would be, as it would be utilized in the real world today, where it is a privilege of the rich and powerful, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so like that, so you have, so you have, the reason you have these expeditions is because Aldwin, which is where, you know, the source of immortality is, the is that, you know, these people, you know, these really rich and powerful people are keeping the immortality for themselves and oppressing the mortals. And, you know, so uh-huh. it's, it's, it's this kind of like, it's this kind of like power nobody should have. And then even for the people that are mortal, they do eventually suffer. They go mad. All of them are doomed to basically become, you know, belonging to Thalamus eventually. Like, yeah. And it should be noted that in this game, dying and going to like the afterlife is not great either. Yes. Like it is you reliving your greatest regret over and over again is how it's yes. described as. <laughs> so your choices in this game of like, oh, being immortal or dying and living your worst regret over and over again, both of those suck. And I'm, <laughs> it's. You know, I'm I'm always here. I've said this on the show before. I'm always here for like real bummer, you know, plots in video games. I'm here for that almost all the time. And this is this is very cool. I like this. I like how it's like, oh, well, being immortal sucks. Well, just die. Well, oh, wait, dying sounds pretty fucking awful too. Maybe being immortal doesn't sound so bad. Oh, but lifetime of, you know, torture by this deity, that's awful. So yeah, damned if you do, damned if you do. Yeah, I, I will say, like, in real life, I'm generally this kind of hedonistic person who thinks, like, you know what, death sucks, actually. I, I'd totally like to live forever if I could. Like, I, I'm very much that kind of, like, short-sighted person, you know, who kind of thinks in terms, like, you know what, I, I'd like to have a few hundred thousand extra years at least to do whatever I want. But but this game and death and as a character in particular... Um, did a really good job on selling me on his way being the right way, at least in this universe compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's, you know, the, the, we, we kind of glossed over briefly, but the scene where you discover your, where Soren discovers his mother is dead, you get like probably the most affecting, like, you know, speech in the game where death basically, he basically lays out his entire philosophy. He's like, hey, you know, death is a matter of principle. And, you know, you know, like death is just kind of something that has to happen. And, you know, if not, all these things you see happening are what happen. And, you know, but life is still magical. And the purpose of life is for you to pass on that magic to future generations who will, you know, who will carry on on your memory with them, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I just remind I was just reminded of something. I'm constantly being reminded of things I forgot to put in the show notes, but yeah. you kind of get these lore notes about the bosses who are mostly immortal. Um as pickups in the world, you pick up those like books that tells you a little bit of the boss's history and those give you a damage boost against the boss. 
Ah, uh, yeah, first of all, that is a cool thing. First of all, that's a great way to um, incentivize exploration because once you find out that that's a mechanic, you do want to go find those books. And it helps you have a reason to read those. There's only two for each boss. Each of them are like, you know, two sentences. They're not very long. So it's not like reading a codex or something like that. Which is another change, by the way. In the original, most of them had three. Whereas in Afterlife, they changed it to two. Okay. So, yeah, so you you can read these um, these lore notes and you get a little bit of the boss's history and, well, most of the bosses have pretty sad stories due to their immortality or other terrible things that happen to them. Yeah, the, the kind of through line that's going on with a lot of these bosses is that you're kind of, like, discovering a lot of, like, other cultures, you know, as you fight these bosses. And the kind of through line is that you're discovering a different form of immortality with a lot of them. And you're seeing, yeah. like, why it didn't work out every time, basically. Like, either either it backfired to them entirely, or it didn't work, or, you know, they, they like, all, all uh, no matter how it was, like, e- even, even when you get to the one race that literally transcended humanity, which I guess we'll talk about that later. You have it in the notes, like the ones yeah. that like, kind of like became like machines or data or whatever. Like they, even their form of immortality, it just kind of ended in a huge disaster basically. Yeah. So again, I, I said earlier before the spoiler wall that the developers, whoever wrote the story had clearly thought about this subject a lot. And there's a lot of creativity and different angles on immortality here, but it is very clear that the developer thinks that immortality is a horrible idea. And in the game, like we said, you you have the choice uh, or like given the option of immortality or dying, both of those are terrible. So (laughs) I kind of like that. So moving on in the story, you, you get like the kind of big plot reveal that the endless who you've been fighting throughout the game is your mom Shocking literally no one. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Maybe it's just me, but like the moment I saw her, the moment I saw this like lady Darth Vader looking character with the voice cha- changer, I was like, oh, that's his mom. But maybe oh. that was just me. <laughs> I had no idea. And like, I've, I think I've heard from others that this is a very obvious twist. But like I mentioned before, I don't really scrutinized or even think about the story much as I'm going in games like this. So this really surprised me and I thought it was a cool moment to find out that it was mom and she is immortal. She is uh, having a tough time of things and I guess she's trying to take over the source for like I don't know, like she has to know that being immortal is terrible. She sees everything that's happening around. So I don't know if she feels like she can make it better or yeah. her. Yeah. Her, her kind of through line in the story is like this feeling of like wanting to like make herself be remembered, basically making her family uh-huh. be remembered. And the, and that is kind of like that, you know, and I think the, the message you're supposed to get is because remember I mentioned earlier that death talks about how, Oh, well, you know, the purpose of life is that you pass on that magic to future generations who will carry your legacy throughout the ages, you know, even after you die. And, you mm-hmm. know, Endless, you know, her, her, you know, her real name is Everly. Um, Ever, you know, Everly has that desire, but she kind of misses the point 
that, you know, you don't have to live forever to pass on a legacy. And yet she feels that way because she lives under this oppressive regime of immortals that, you know, are, you know, that, you know, that are, you know, treating them really terribly. And, you know, even when you meet her at the very end and, you know, she's talking to you about being remembered, she's like, you see all these statues erected to these supposedly important people from eras gone by. Can you name a single one of them? No, you can't. Like, because history forgets us because we are not immortal, basically. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how uh, if you see a story about, like, a, you know, a medieval king who's oppressing the peasants and they aspire to be king one day so they can, you know, maybe do right or at least, like, you know, be in that position, kind of that similar type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, let's talk about the ending. The... Well, we'll we'll start with the false ending, which is the one that I got. Yeah, it's also it's also the only ending in the original game, to be clear. Okay, okay. So you get to the source of immortality, and you have to fight endless. Uh, by this point, you know it's your mom, and the final boss fight is a lot of fun. You you fight her, and then you go to a different arena where you fight. I think it's three different versions of three her. Three different versions different... of her. Yes, there's a. Endless sadness, endless anger, and endless. No, wait, it's sadness and endless sadness, endless rage, and I forget what the third one is. Endless regret, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. One of those very negative uh, feelings. Yeah. So uh, you fight the boss, you destroy the source of immortality, and the game is over. You basically. I, I don't actually. I didn't write this down and I don't really remember how the ending was. I just remember feeling unsatisfied by that ending and it kicks you right back into like the resurrection at the beginning of the game again. Basically the, the way the original ending works is that you, you defeat endless. I do want to call out a, I do want to call out my favorite piece of dialogue from the game right here where, Mm Hmm. Like basically when you fight Endless, you know, there's these kind of like three bespoke phases for her that, you know, that, and you do have to kind of refight all of them every time you die, which I'm not a fan of because I think it, specifically because I think it kind of lessens the narrative impact if you're fighting, if you're fighting like for an hour trying to beat all three of these phases as opposed to beating one and getting the little bespoke cutscene where you get Endless, you know, kind of like expressing her regret to you, expressing her sadness, expressing her rage, etc. Right. Um... And there's, you know, one in particular where, you know, like the the part of the conflict of the play is Soren being like, how can you tell me to kill my own mother? And Death is trying to convince him that, look, your mother is going to become like all those like, you know, nothing zombies that you fought on the way here eventually. Like, yeah, that that's not really your mother. Yeah, anymore. yeah. And like, yeah. And like, you know, and there's one great line where Endless says something like, you know, about how, you know. How you know? How could Soren be a pawn of this creature? How could her own son betray her? And Death says, um, "You know, only those in my door can see me. You've been an absent guest for the past several years." Yeah, and you know, play the game. Death is a great character, full of lines like that. <laughs> but um, yep, really good. But uh, but yeah. So, like, so anyway, so you defeat Endless. She kind of you know sadly accepts, and you know she apologizes to you for everything she's done, and then and then you destroy the source of immortality. And you kind of get this almost like, it's like a link to the past uh, 
um, ending but sadder, where you just kind of see what's happening to all the characters in the world, and about ninety yeah. percent of it is just seeing like you know all these like immortal characters die, basically just like kind of evaporating to smoke. Because you yeah you, know, you could you could see die. like the bosses that you fought before like crumbling into dust. There was one uh, we'll talk about in a second when we talk about bosses, but there was one I was like he was crumbling into uh you know dust and i was like yeah fuck you crumble piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it is pretty uh affecting um emotionally and yeah the link to the past like kind of like scroll through the world and see what's happening with the characters is a good comparison I, I i do want to point out one very very significant narrative change they've made from the original to afterlife mm-hmm. in, in the ending where we, we kind of glossed over this but when endless fights you and then you get sent to thalamus's realm uh, right before that happens your buddies Vrail and ioni show up and then endless kills them that does not happen in the original in the original they storm the castle with you but then some unexplained darkness takes over them and then you have to kill them basically right so they so they, so they end up dying regardless but at different points in the story for some reason right well in my story there there was a point where you were asked whether you'd rather save Ioni or Vrail. The right. original did that too, and then did nothing with it. It was very strange. <laughs> well, it didn't do anything with it in Afterlife either, because yeah. when I when I came back, they were both dead. So yeah, yeah, oh, that, well. that yeah, that's part of the story. But but anyway, so that's the original ending. Yeah, and so you'll get a kind of voiceover at the end um, that says, uh, "Your mom has been freed from immortality, but nobody will remember anything she did." So that's the um that's the kind of standard ending. I did not do the true ending because the true ending is based on fighting uh boss rematches which I thought was optional. Uh I like I thought it was completely optional. I thought it was just like challenge uh rematches like in Dark Souls 2 or something like that. So I'll kick to you for this true ending. Okay, cool. All right, so here we go. Um so basically um and these were present in the original game as well, is we kind of touched on this earlier, is there's something called heroic rematches, where whenever you beat a boss, you have the option to refight a harder version of them with, you know, more health, more damage, new moves, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you can do that for every boss in the game. However, they added a true ending that's supposed to take place after the original ending in Afterlife. I'm pretty sure it's literally just called the Afterlife ending, basically. Right, right. Where they kind of pick up on a plot thread that was planned in the original, but ultimately ended up getting cut. Where Soren apparently had a uh, had a brother, like a, I think, like I think it's supposed to be a twin brother who um, apparently was like for some reason he was like demonic, and then he was taken away by the authorities. Okay, you find out later, but um, <laughs> yeah, but you kind of see like his specter throughout this at some point late in the story. Right. And you kind of get a hint that he wants you to do something, but it's not stated what it is. It turns out that what it is, is you need to fight and beat at least five heroic rematches. And if you yeah. do that, and then, and it could be any of them, like, you know, it could be any of them. Uh, generally, at least in my experience, you know, by the time you get to the end, you are at level or above level for five or more of them. So you can choose which ones you want to fight. Mm-hmm. Is that when you get the original ending, Instead of getting the, you know, at when you try to destroy the source of immortality, instead of getting the regular ending, you see this uh, character, your brother, who his name is Ash, 
And you don't know he's your brother at this point, but you know, you see his character named Ash show up and he's like, okay, I've undone your greatest regret. I need you to wake up. And, you know, kind of this weird trippy stuff happens again, like with Thalamus. And what you find out, uh, Soren wakes up. He wakes up in the afterlife. And what you, and then, you know, he sees death there and death is all confused. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are you, why are you coming here asking about your mom when I haven't seen you in years? And what apparently happened is that when Soren got sent to Thalamus's realm in Yilnoth, um, apparently the entire rest of the game, he was actually dreaming in Thalamus's grasp. So like the entire ending of the game ah. was a ruse by Thalamus. Like he ba- he intentionally kind of engineered that you would do, he basically kind of engineered a fake dream where you imagine destroying the source of immortality, but you did not. And interesting. So Whoa. yeah, so you never so you never fought Endless at the end, you never killed her, and your friends Rail and Ioni never died. Okay. And so, you know, so you know, you're talking to death, and then uh Thalamus shows up, and it's not it's not Thalamus like the big monster you see in Yilnoth. It's kind of this smaller, like more human sized avatar of Thal closer to human sized right, avatar right. of Thalamus that is also really trippy. It's an amazing looking sprite, by the way. It's just really it is, yeah. Really freaky to look at. But um I watched this um I watched this ending like boss fight against the Avatar on YouTube. It's really cool. Yeah. And um and so, you know, Thalamus shows up and tries to convince you to join him. He says, Hey, look, um, you know, you know, death is like saying, look, he's lying to you about bringing, reuniting you with your family. It's just an illusion. And Thalamus says, yeah, it's an illusion. And who's the one that's keeping it an illusion? Him, death. And, you know, you kind of, and, you know, you see your brother at this point as grown up. And this is one of the strangest decisions in this game, in my opinion, just visually, mm-hmm. where I, I know we kind of previously described Endless as being this kind of like weirdo, like kind of like sci-fi anime, like, you know, armored swordsman character. Mm-hmm. Ash is just full on this like weirdo anime villain with like really pale gray skin <laughs> and like purple hair. He doesn't even have the same accent as the rest of the characters. He has like the kind of like <laughs> almost like like anime dub shonen villain voice you know like like a Yu-Gi-Oh villain voice almost and you know and you know he's got like he's got the two the two knives and like every edge lord he's holding one of them reverse handle you know that kind of stuff yeah and, of course right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you know so anyway so, Thal- so Thalamus tries Thalamus and Death are both trying to convince you to join their side and then you get to make a choice and you get to choose either Death's Gambit or Thalamus Gambit and I think just based on the names, it's very obvious the developer is trying to tell you that <laughs> yeah. one is the right choice, right? Right, right. Like one is literally <laughs> the name of the game, and you know, and you know, if you choose a let's let's do the bad let's do the bad ending first, um, because it's a little bit shorter. Uh, if you choose Thalamus Gambit, you choose side with Thalamus. Um, you basically have to. I haven't. I actually didn't look up all the details. There might be something you need to do beforehand, but you just kind of like fight your way through the afterlife so that you can fight death at the end. And mm-hmm. yeah. it's actually kind of crazy because, like the um, the uh, the thing with the infinite jump, right? There is yeah. apparently a defensive bullet hell that you fly through with death chasing you throughout the afterlife to get to the end of it where you fight him, and it looks wild. Like it, like it's a bad ending, but it's not just like a lazy like, oh, here's a bad ending, here's a lazy cutscene. No, it is an entire level 
where you're just kind of like making your way through and then eventually you're literally just like flying through this bullet hell like trying to get away from death like it's a little bit like um if you remember the metal sonic boss fight in sonic cd where you know you're did you play that i did not know okay well for people for other people who played this game that i think a lot of people played like there's a uh, boss in sonic cd where you're racing against uh your mechanical counterpart and Robotnik is kind of chasing you in the background. And if he mm-hmm. catches up as kind of like an auto scroller, and if he catches up to you, you die. This kind of does that with death where you're like flying through this, except you're flying through, you're racing through this bullet hell and death is kind of chasing behind you. And if he catches up, it's over. And when you get to the end, you uh, fight death. And if you uh, defeat death, you, you get this, uh, you know, bad ending where all where all the souls get released from the afterlife and, you know, everything is chaos and, you know, Thalamus, you know, kind of gives you your fake happy ending where you're reunited with your family, you know, with your mother and father and your brother Ash and your sister. Mm-hmm. And that's the yeah. and then and then automatically boosts you into new game plus. I, I want to impress on that detail because both the fake original ending and this bad ending, Thalamus Camp, both of them automatically boot you to new game plus, right? Okay. And right. however, if you choose a side with death, if you choose death's gambit, um, you know, Thalamus basically, you know, tells Ash, like, this is what your family bond is worth, nothing. And then he just kind of like, you know, whisks, he kind of whisks Ash away, you know, wh- whisks the little anime boy away into his, you know, hideout or whatever. And, um, mm-hmm. and then, de- and then, you know, Thalamus leaves and death is like, look, okay, if you're going to stop Thalamus, you've got to, I don't know what deals, you've got to, um, you've got to free your friends, you know, from basically, you gotta basically gotta, you gotta find your friends and find a way to escape the nightmare because you're also trapped in Thalamus's nightmare. So mm-hmm. you go, so you, be, so you have to go back to, um, you have to go back to a level that you have marked in the notes as one of your favorites. You have to go back to the kind okay. of this, uh, do you want to talk about that now since that's important? Hey, to go, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Basically, there's a, there's a, one of the earlier on we alluded to a, form of immortality that involved transcending humanity. Yeah. And that's this place called Guarded Tomb, which is like this strange, like kind of like derelict like ship that you find like weirdly sci-fi ship. Yeah. Stuck in the middle of, you know, this generally, you know, high fantasy medievalish world. Right. That you went to earlier in the game. And you go back there, and what you find out is that is that a lot of like the souls of people are still like kind of trapped by Thalamus there mm-hmm. in some way. I don't remember the exact details, but you go there to get, you know, to get, to get a fragment of your own soul, basically to, you know, to, to stand against Thalamus. And after you get, after you get, and what you, what you end up getting is you, um, you mentioned the morph ball earlier, right? How there's like these kind of like, yeah. Yeah, basically you get that ability there. And instead of it being an ability, it's literally an item you equip and throw. It's like a little stone and you throw it and it fits in between like, you know, small like crevices or whatever. And then you just kind of like poof and you teleport to where it is. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of, if you played Axiom Verge, it's kind of like the uh the little like drone bot that you have where like you can send okay. the drone bot and then eventually you get the ability to teleport yourself to wherever the drone bot is. It's it's a bit like that. Okay. Cool. And yes, yeah, so you get that. And then you have to awaken your you have to, you know, you meet you meet this little like AI girl, like weird like 
you know, AI girl there who you end up having to fight, but she gets corrupted by this totally optional boss that I I don't feel equipped to talk about because I didn't research it, but there was a there's an optional boss in this game that's uh that's that was literally locked behind an ARG that the developer had for the game, basically. Okay. Uh yeah, but yeah, so anyway, you um you have to go so you find out where Ioni and Rail and Endless supposedly died, but they didn't. And you kind of like enter their dreams and see what their regrets are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see Ioni has these regrets involving her father. Um, who was, you know, we kind of, that was a plot thread that we kind of glossed over earlier, but her uh, father who kind of got corrupted and turned into some kind of like, basically got turned into Venom, essentially. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, basically just got turned into, you know, this kind of like, you know, like weird, like, you know, Venom-esque kind of monster. Um, you talk to a uh, Rail who tried to protect his home, but ended up getting uh, ravaged and he was branded a traitor and even his own son turned on him. There is mm-hmm. a pretty gruesome scene where you see him on a chopping block and then it cuts to black. And when you go back, you see that his tail has been cut off as a punishment. Hmm. That sucks. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> never told. It's just kind of shown there. And it's like, Oh my God. But yeah. Um, and then you, uh, and you, be, it's basically you kind of like talking these characters through their regret to wake up. And when you get to endless, at the um at the top of the tower where you fought her um you kind of find out her greatest regret and you kind of this is where you learn ash's backstory where ash was a young boy and i don't remember the details but he's like demonic in some way like he apparently kills someone by accident and then the authorities come to take him away and you know um and then you know everly mom is unable or doesn't have like the will to stop them and so he gets taken away Uh and you know, that's her greatest regret. And, you know, Soren talks, you know, talks it through with her. And uh-huh. this kind of like all like makes all the characters, I guess, kind of like lucid within Thalamus's nightmare. And you fight through Thalamus's nightmare. It doesn't look like Yilmoth. Like it's, it looks different. Like it's kind of like a it different. It looks like area. a, it looks like a town, right? Like you're fighting through a city. That That's actually the very end. That's different. Oh, that's uh, that the very end. The okay. Thing. No, that's at the very end. So you kind of like make your way through Thalamus's realm. And then you get to the end and, you know, after, you know, a number of mini bosses and whatnot, and you mm-hmm. uh, fight Thalamus, you, like you see like the big monster in the background and you kind of fight his avatar and you get this really, really big, really rewarding climactic boss fight with uh, Thalamus's avatar. And, you know, you get like, it very much feels like, I almost hate to make this comparison because it feels lazy, but there's a very real, almost like Avengers Endgame level of like hype, you know? Like, you know, kind of, no, I think that that's, I think that's fair from what yeah, I watched. Like it really like, feels like they're trying to inject all this hype is like, you know, especially like for people who play the original game and are finally seeing like the conclusion of the story, like you fight Thalamus's avatar and then like all the souls that were in Gardachum come to help you when you're about to get defeated. And then, you know, you see, uh, and then, you know, you get this, uh, you get the final like Metroidvania upgrade and like, you know, like it gives you like the same effect, but you know, then when you fight, then when you fight Thalamus again, you're invincible. So you just you get this kind of like victory lap where it's just like you and Ioni and Endless and Rail just wrecking Thalamus's shit, basically. Just like you know, yeah, you know, you, you like everything but the kitchen sink is there. Like the 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 big music, like you know, all the characters get their one liners, like you know, for my father, mm-hmm. you know, just and yeah. you know, Th- Thalamus like crying in despair as you destroy his nightmare realm. 
and then you kind of uh, wake up. Um, it kind of like fades to black, and they pull a crazy trick that I really like. Where again, this is where the new game plus thing is relevant, and it's. I feel it's especially relevant if you played the original game, where you got this screen, you know, for getting to the end, where you defeat Thalamus, and then you see the new game plus selection screen, like just out of the blue, it just shows up, and okay. you know. You can instantly tell something's off because you hear kind of like the Yelmoth music quietly in the background. And uh-huh. then, like, if you wait for a few seconds, Thalamus is like, you know, go ahead. You want to make progress, don't you? And, like, you kind of, like, <laughs> faintly hear the other characters in the background, like, like saying, you know, Soren, don't do it. Wake up. Wake up. Soren, don't do it. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're supposed to wait out and not choose. I don't know what happens. I don't know... <laughs> It would be amazingly cruel and ballsy if, like, choosing New Game Plus there actually restarted your game. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it does that or if it just gives you a game over. In a game that's been super generous and nice to you, that would be very out of character. Yeah, I don't know if... um... Yeah, I don't know if, uh, you know, what happens, actually, if you do it. I I meant to look it up, but I forgot. But, um... Yeah. But so you wait. And then, you know, it's kind of over and you see, like, just everything fade to black and the characters wake up. And uh, I guess here's a detail we didn't mention earlier. Soren is the only character in the game who is not voice acted. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, every other character is fully voice acted. That was not the case in the original. The original had really weird patchy voice acting. But, like, in the... But in the original and in this one, Soren was infamously completely silent. Like you would see, you saw his text. He did have dialogue, but it was right, you just but no voice. It. Yeah, you just yep. read it um, while all other characters voice. But then, like Soren wakes up and you hear Soren speak with an actual voice actor. He's got you know he's got a proper blimey British accent. You know he talks with and you know and you know you see ah. you get, yeah you get dialogue between him and Endless and like you know he just totally has a voice for this ending sequence. Um, so I was watching. Like I was watching this ending on YouTube and mm-hmm. I was like, why the fuck is Soren talking? Like, is this a PC version exclusive? Like that Soren has <laughs> no, a voice? No, no, no. It but... is, o- it is okay, only okay. when you get to this ending. I've actually wondered if maybe restarting New Game Plus after this would give you voice acting for the entire game. That was something I was wondering about. I don't know if that's the case, but that would be an interesting choice. Okay. Like if that was kind of like mm-hmm. a reward for beating the game. But, but, uh, but so Soren's back up, and then you have um, you have the character saying, "Hey, you know, we have to, you know, they're they're back in Vados now, which is you know the homeland that Soren and Endless came from, and right. Soren and Everly came from, and you know, you kind of wake up, and they're like, look, 'Look, we're alive now. We have to fight to protect our land.' And they go out, mm-hmm. and the Thalamus is still alive and kicking. Apparently, you see Thalamus's avatar show up, and you see Ash show up again, and you know." Even though you destroyed Thalamus's realm, he is still around and he wants to just kind of like exact, he just wants exact revenge. He just wants to kill you all, basically. And so you uh-huh. have one more boss fight with Thalamus, which is, you can die in this one, but it's, it's a very easy boss fight. It's more of kind of like a, you know, pleasantry at this point where you and Endless are fighting uh, Thalamus together. And when the fight is over, I don't even think you have to get his health all the way down. I don't think I got all the way down. I think I just got it part way. And then you kind of get this, you get this cutscene where Endless is fighting Thalamus and they're trying, and Thalamus is about to set off this like huge, like anime Nova bomb type attack or whatever. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, Endless, you know, since Endless can kind of like teleport, she's like, hey, look. 
at the very last second, I can teleport him to where the source of immortality is, and I can send it very far away. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you know, Soren is like, "Look, you're going to die if you do that," and I can't watch that again. I can't watch you die. And mm-hmm. you know, this is kind of like the payoff to Endless's character, whereas Endless in the original ending did not understand the value of life and the value of death. Like, you know, right. she kind of just died, like, sad and alone. In this one, she specifically chooses to give up her life so that, you know, her children can live, basically. Like, she has learned the lesson that death taught Soren in that one cutscene earlier. That, you know, right. hey, the purpose of life is to pass on the magic to your children and they carry on your memory. And right. so, you know, you get this kind of, like, touching scene of, like, endless, you know, kind of, like, defeating Thalamus. Apparently not once and for all. I'll get to that detail in a moment. But, you know, defeating Thalamus, sending him in the source of immortality very far away. And she just kind of falls to her death, gives a brief, like, you know, kind of like emotional speech as she's falling to her death about her children. And she dies. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the game ends. Um, they intentionally leave this cliffhanger with Ash, the anime boy, still being out there, apparently. Um and still being evil in whatever way. Um, okay, so Death's Gambit too. Yeah, yeah, it's very weird. Like for all for all of the work they do to like close this story, they intentionally leave it open. Like, hey, Thalamus is still out there. Like, you know, the source of immortality is still out there. And you know, you do specifically yeah. get a scene of Ash being alive somewhere and still being like a demonic little, you know, evil Alucard type character. And. Okay. Um, you know, you kind of get the little, like, wrap-up of, you know, Sorn is no longer in Death's service, and talking, you know, Death and him are talking about the life he'll lead, and, you know, because, uh, we mentioned this earlier, but, you know, Death, there's this lovely sprite they made of Death wearing a uh, apron, a chef's apron, that they mm-hmm. use a couple times in the game, because they think it's funny, right, and so right. they find an excuse to use that again, because Sorn says he'll take up cooking, and then, you know, you have Death teaching him how to cook, you know, stuff like that, and... Yeah, you get death's final words, and that is the end of the game, basically. Um, it's okay. Yeah, all right. And you know, and and, and it, it pointedly does not give you new game plus after doing this. And then at the very end, the devs there's a dev note where they say, "Hey, if you ever want to, we've given you a new item in your inventory. It's called like the seed of Thalamus, and you can use it any time you want by booting up your save file. You can use it." to start a new game plus, but do you really, really want to uh, rob Soren of this happy ending? And yeah. like, I think the, the message of the game that I think is kind of interesting is that no, the cycle is over. You're supposed to be okay with it being over. You're not supposed to play new game plus basically. Yeah. It's kind of like the message they go for. I like how that fits into kind of like the, the theme of the game, kind of like the mechanics of the game and the way that games work and new game plus work fit that fits into the story. That's cool. Yeah. So this is the point where I complain about how all of this content that you just explained in such detail and sounds like so awesome. Yeah. uh, This is locked behind something that I thought was a completely optional thing, like in Dark Souls 2. Like, I also complained about this in Hollow Knight. And I also complain about this in lots of games that have these true endings where I feel like someone who is not playing with a guide or someone who is not playing for completion will never find these true endings naturally. Like in Hollow Knight, I think that 
the stuff you have to do to get the real ending and fight Radiance in Hollow Knight is... I don't know how anyone finds that without it's a guide. It's very guide, dang it, yeah. And in this game, I hate that all of this extra content and this extra ending is hidden behind something that I feel like is should be completely optional. And when I saw those heroic rematches that was like, oh, you fight this boss again, it's level 120, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. Like I don't fight I don't rematch bosses in Dark Souls 2. It has that similar mechanic. And uh so I didn't do that and I wasn't able to experience this all of not even just like a, a different ending. It's all of this extra content, whole levels and stuff like that. And I I just don't like this. I don't like when games do this where these like seemingly arbitrary things that seem optional or things that a regular player would never figure out to do lead to all of this extra content and the real ending for the story. I don't like it. Yeah, I will. Uh, see, it's it's kind of interesting because one other change from the original that I did not mention is that in the is that when you get to the tower at the end before you fight Endless for the original ending, they completely changed and revamped all the progression and how going up that tower works. They change the enemy placement. They change the things you fight there. They change the actual direction in which you, you know, you progress up through the tower. But one especially interesting change they made is that in the original, um, there, there's an early boss called the uh, Soul of the Phoenix in the game, right? Right. Um, where in the original you fought that boss, but there was very curiously not a heroic rematch option for that boss in particular when you get to the tower you fight the heroic version of that boss as a required boss on the way up Uh and i find it very weak and they remove that which which you know let's assume for a second let's assume for a second that i i don't think i do agree with you that the whole like heroic rematch thing required to fight the end the fight the true ending is bad uh but let's let's assume let's let's pretend for a second we think we think that's okay and good right Uh uh-huh now they still did a bad job of signaling that you had to do that right because you know i definitely looked up that that was something you had to do if they had kept that required heroic rematch with uh, the soul of the phoenix in it like in the original that would have been a perfect opportunity for them to have for them to have the little like narrative hint that hey like you know maybe you fight the heroic boss and then maybe you hear ash's little like you know you know little like you know he 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 kind of voice go hey um fight for more of these and i'll be able to help you out or something to that effect but with like that feels that feels like a really 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 obvious like missed opportunity where that was literally already present in the original game but then they decided to get rid of it here you know yeah. which i found very strange so with the i don't know i the ending that you described sounds very cool i i feel like i've made my point i like i don't think that locking all of that content behind Uh, something that reads as extremely optional i don't think that's a good decision i think it's by far the worst design decision they made in this game i think i agree i think i agree it is it is very arbitrary like i like fighting bosses so it wasn't a big deal to me but it was still like this weirdly like it feels i don't know maybe this is what they were thinking but it feels like it's in the same spirit of like requiring you to do a boss rush at the end i guess in a way but it's not 
Yeah. But I don't know. Like they could have just not had that. Like they they could have they could have yeah. had like what I would have done is like there are there were a good multitude of op of new bosses in Afterlife, optional bosses in this. They could have easily uh-huh. just had it where you had to fight one of those maybe to get you know to get right. you, to get an item you needed for the true ending. You know, like yeah, or, or you know, like they're they're like you know just. You know, so just use the new content that you're already putting in the game as like a catalyst for getting to the new ending, basically. Yeah. Yep. I agree. There, there could have been a more uh, obvious yeah. thing. There's, to there's do. not even really like a good like narrative justification for it beyond just like a nebulous like you know, oh, you have to get stronger, you know, or something. Which I'm not sure what was up with that. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I've said my piece. Yeah. And we are running uh, over time here. So, let's move into kind of like, oh, let's go lightning round. Uh, what was your favorite level in the game? Ah, uh, my favorite level. You know, I didn't even consider this one. Um, how about you go first? <laughs> okay. So, my my favorite level, and it might just be because it's so different, but you mentioned it before, Garde Tomb, which I describe as like a horror Metroid level. It's like this, you know, underground sci-fi level. Um, I enjoyed that. I enjoy the themes of that, like the immortality that they did. They basically turned themselves into uh, like data or uploaded their consciousness or something like that. But the way that it went wrong was that the boss of that area is basically just feeding on those consciousnesses to keep itself alive. And so your existence as a citizen of that place is just doomed to power this, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, this like robot dinosaur type thing Yeah, uh, yeah. down there. Yeah, by, by Surge the Lightning Lurker, yeah. Yeah, by Surge. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's my favorite level. My, that's probably my favorite level too, to be honest. Um, I did have a lot of affection for a level they cut that I think... I don't know if they cut it from Afterlife or if I just didn't find it. But in the original, there was a kind of like high mountainous area where there's this like giant titan that you can kind of platform your way to the top of. Like almost like kind of like a Shadow of the Colossus type of, type of, you know, monster that you can kind of platform your way to the top of. And the reason I loved that so much was that when you got to the top, you would kind of go inside him and you totally just saw a naked Calvin and Hobbes reference for no reason. Like you saw the, <laughs> uh, the melting snowman prophets of doom holding the signs that say the end is nigh basically. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. You know, as a huge Calvin and Hobbes kid, I absolutely loved that. I was very shocked to see it, in, see it in a, in a soul's like of all things. <laughs> but, yeah. Hell yeah. And then let's uh real quick lightning round. Give me a couple of bosses that you like and give me one that you don't like. Okay, um, my favorite boss in the base game is um, Galaxy Mage Amalvaro by a yep. long shot. Uh, him and um, I, either him or Origi, the kind of like space mar- the Russian space marine that you fight. Yeah, the sniper, right? Yeah, yeah, the sniper, the, the one, the one who is very clearly uh, meant to be riffed on a riff of Ghost in the Shell. Um, yeah, she is. Uh, she she's a really cool fight. Um, as for new bosses, I really liked the, um, oh man, what was it called? Oh, the Grey Wanderer, which I think is an optional boss. It's this kind mm-hmm. of like, 
you fight this uh, mage character who looks a little bit like uh, Lady D from uh, Resident Evil 8. <laughs> but uh, she's kind of like a mage and she you, you use the infinite double jump in that fight, if I remember correctly. And it has the it has what I think is the single hypest song on the soundtrack as well, which is pretty cool. Okay, I'll be sure to throw that one in. Yeah, as for bosses I don't like, um, if we're including heroics, uh, heroic Phoenix was very dire in um in uh in Afterlife in particular. Okay. Beyond that, the Afterlife version version of a uh, Thunderlord Karn was very frustrating. Like they took this early game boss and turned it into a late game boss for some reason, and I found it like ridiculously frustrating to fight. Yeah, that's also my least favorite boss. That's the one that I said earlier when I saw him crumbling. I was like, "Yeah, fuck you, crumble." Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's it's really weird because it was it was a I thought it was a fine easy boss in the original, but in this one, it was just yeah, ugh. yeah. So like when I was I so I died to this thing at least twenty five times, and so I got on like this was right after Afterlife dropped. So like the wikis and the message boards hadn't caught up to it yet. So I was like looking up advice for it. You didn't know that you were supposed to stomp the uh, battlefield. Well, I mean, I figured that out, but my, my problem was I was just looking for advice because I kept dying and like getting thrown off the edge. And all of these message boards were like, yeah, Karen is super easy. Like you shouldn't have any (laughs) trouble with Karen. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't, that feels bad. So, but yeah, I, I hate that fight. Uh, for those who haven't played, if you're listening, you're on this like tilting platform. And so you have to manage his attacks, which are not insanely difficult, but at the same time, you have to manage how the platform is tilting. And if it gets too uh, vertical, you will just fly off the edge and it's not insta kill but you take it. I don't actually. I don't remember. I don't you think take, it's you take, you take you take a degree of damage. And you they, take you, a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You take. Yeah, I don't remember how much, but you take you take damage, and then you just kind of reappear back on the platform if you're if you're not yeah. dead. Yeah. So I hated that fight. That's by far my least favorite. I've also heard that the, uh, the oh, I forget what it's called, the Eldritch Council, I think, or something like that. Yeah, Eldritch Council. I heard that sucked in the original game. I thought it was fine in Afterlife. Yeah, it was dramatically easier in Afterlife. Good, good. Yeah. So I enjoyed the kind of aesthetics of that fight. My favorite ones to fight were Amovaro, like you said, just a great fight against a sorcerer. I really enjoyed that, Uh, except there's like those vertical lines that run across the screen that serve as platforms, and you can jump up or down like infinitely, basically. The problem with that is if you die, you drop your plume where you were. So if you dropped your plume, you know, 65 platforms up, you have to go up and find it again. Oh, goodness. <laughs> or just pay to get it back. And the Dark Knight, I thought, was really fun, which you mentioned Venom earlier. The it's Dark very Knight was cool like fight. a Venom yeah. fight. And one other thing uh, that I would like to end the podcast on is uh, there is a giant thunder horse boss that yeah. you, it's one of the uh, ones you, you get this task to get the three seals for this door or something like That'd that. That would be Cusith. Cusith, yeah. And you get, this is one of the ones you can fight. But when you walk up to it, because it doesn't attack you right away. And so I walked up to it and I was like, oh, I don't, I have to do something to trigger this boss fight. And you get a, a prompt to pet the horse. Yep. And if you pet the horse, you get the seal because Cusith recognizes your kindness and you don't have to fight him. And I heard that that fight is not very fun. 
So I was like, okay, cool. I will pet the horse and I will move along. You have a nice day, Cusif. See, I, I'm a greedy, bloodthirsty jerk. So I pet him, got the seal, and then I fought him anyway because I was obsessive and wanted to fight all the bosses. Plus, you get a sk- plus you don't get a skill point unless you kill him. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but um, okay. So real quick, is that is that fight fun? Did I miss out on something? Um. Okay. So the original version of that fight was worse but also much more interesting. It is one of the most dramatically changed of the original boss fights, I think. Um, Because you remember how when you fought, how when you go into the arena, there's those spikes on either side of that small like area where you can stand in front of him. Uh-huh. In the original, it wasn't like that. It was all flat ground with all those platforms. And what would happen is that he did tons of attacks that did tons of damage on the ground, but he would kind of like slowly make his way to the left and crush platforms. And if you didn't defeat him fast enough, he would, you would kind of like lose ground and get crushed against the wall and die. And that's, that's pretty lame. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was a worse and more frustrating boss fight, but I think it was also way, way, way more interesting than the fight in afterlife where they kind of like, they kind of just made it much more simpler. Like they made it more fair and everything, but it's just kind of you limited to this small stretch of ground right in front of you. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I It feels like they wanted to do more with it, but they couldn't like, like originally supposedly you were able to like get on top of him. That was a conceptual idea. They never were able to oh, put yeah. in, in the original. S- same with the forgotten guy. And you were supposed to like get on top of him and that kind of stuff. So. Okay. Oh, and one more, like we can't, we shouldn't talk about the bosses in this game without talking about the kind of fight in the middle of the game or kind of late third of the game against Thalamus where you fight this, this giant screen filling boss. That is such a good boss. It's a, it's a puzzle boss and you don't actually fight him. You can't actually damage him that way. He's trying to get you to despair like uh, he does to try to feed on your negative emotions. And so you get, you get these kind of, items on the ground i don't remember if they're books or just item uh, they're just like random kinda, pickups generally yeah and so you get over them and you'll see like um you'll see these different emotions and some will be choose positive, positive some are negative. choose the obviously positive one basically right so it'll yeah. be like hope dread love fear and so like you're you're dodging his attacks but you're trying to pick up these positive emotions and i i think it thematically works really well like there's this struggle to hold on to these positive emotions so you don't fall victim to his yeah thing. and if he, yeah and if he, and and also there's kind of a challenge of them like moving around sometimes you also have to like find yourself like a lot of them will feature like the little boy version of soren kind of like huddled down in a fetal position because he's upset and you're supposed to like find him among all the other like visual noise that's going on that kind of stuff and yeah yeah, it's it's a it's a very very interesting fight, and I think it remains entirely unchanged between the original and Afterlife. I think that was like one fight where they just didn't touch it at all because it was already really good, basically. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time to wrap this up. Uh, I think we could go for another hour talking about the bosses and stuff like that, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So, just one more time, I want to say the Afterlife update. And then this game in general, as Death's Gambit Afterlife, is fantastic. The Afterlife update is a kind of... You know, this team could have just made another game with that same time, or like maybe a little bit more time, but they could have just made another game. But they decided to go back 
and make Death's Gambit into the game that they envisioned, I think they really succeed. So, yeah, great game. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. I agree. It is a fantastic game, and more people should play it. Like, if you if you like any of the things that we said the game is, like, you know, this good story, action RPG, Souls-like, Metroidvania, like, you know, combat-centric, you know, almost bought game with really good bosses like i think you'll i think you'll like death scan band should give it a shot yeah all right well that's a good note to finish on so if you made it this far thank you so much again if you would like to support the show the best thing you can do is tell your friends about it and follow on social media talk to me about death's gambit i would be more than willing to talk about it more than happy to actually i love this game and Yeah, rate and review if you can, subscribe, look in the episode description for links to the Tales from the Backlog social media and also Moonborn's Twitter account. Moon, thanks for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed this and thank you for uh, explaining the story because I was, uh, like I said, not that the story's bad. I just, I'm not really a, a really close digger in story in games like this. So thanks so much for all of the expertise and all of that. Yeah, thank you for having me on. My my apologies if I butchered some of it. I'm I'm sure I didn't get all of it right, but I did. But you know, I think I got the gist of it down. So I'm I'm, I'm glad I was here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. We'll surely have you back again. So, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>